Welcome to the first ever podcast. My name is Jeremy Bohm. I am your host. And if this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. My guest this week for episode 169 is Jack Shirley. And to make this extra exciting, my co-host for this episode is George Clark of the band Death Heaven who I am about to start a U.S. tour with this coming weekend, where they will be celebrating the 10-year anniversary of Sunbather. So this all ties together because none other than Jack Shirley produced that record. So I figured, hey, why not take this opportunity, talk to Jack, celebrate his incredible career, and bring on George to have some real in-depth Sunbather talk. It's a lot of fun. And hey, I want to let you know if you're new here that there's a bonus episode available right now where Jack and George answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. You can access that by going over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. You can subscribe for as little as $3 a month and get access to that bonus episode, plus all the other bonus stuff. There's a Discord channel, all sorts of fun stuff happening over there. Um, I will likely be keeping everyone updated with how this tour is going. I'm, uh, I'm really excited about it. We start in Chicago on Sunday, then we're going to be playing Detroit. Uh, and in no particular order, Philly, New York, Boston, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, Los Angeles, um, Denver, day off in Dallas, where Touche is going to headline. And then the last show is going to be in Austin. Check tour dates over at toucheamore.com slash tour. We really hope to see you there. Can't wait to do this. Um, so, hey. Jack has been producing records for a really long time. He was also a member of the band Comadre, which is a huge inspiration for Touche Amore. So I've known Jack for upwards of 20 years now, which is pretty crazy to think about. And uh, I've been a big fan of him and his work. So this was a lot of fun. And it goes without saying, George is one of the coolest people in the entire world. So sit back and enjoy this conversation with two of the smartest and most handsome men in my life. It's Jack Shirley and George Clark. I am joined today by Jack Shirley and my boy. You know, it's so funny. I always hesitate. Do you, you prefer George Clark, right? Because uh, you're a man of many names. I am George Clark. Yeah. My middle name is Lesage. It's uh, I just used it as a moniker kind of early on because my dad and grandfather and great grandfather all have the same name. Right. So and it's sexy. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah. Thank you, I appreciate that. You it's got a name like Lisit. You're gonna use that. Terrible for guest list, though. Yeah. Oh, it's rough. It's a rough. It's rough out there. Let me tell you, George Four. You know, George. I mean, that's what I need to start doing. That's the reflex. G Four. <laughs> well, I'm joined by the uh, by the both of you. We're we're doing this as sort of a. Uh, well, firstly, you know, I've always wanted to have Jack on the show, so this is going to be fun for just having Jack for all his uh, his Jackness. But also Thank at the you. same time, uh, you know, we're kind of doing this as a celebration of the anniversary of Sunbather. Uh, George has been on the show in the past, and I hit him up to co-host this with me to talk to the lovely Jack. So thank you both for being here. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Um, I guess we'll just start with Jack. Are you originally from Half Moon Bay? I know that's where Camadri was based out of. Oh no, we were we were more like Redwood City, which is I mean, it's not really far from Half Moon Bay, but like you know, as far as like there's a peninsula right that goes between San Francisco and down to like through Palo Alto and whatnot. And we're kind of like in the middle of that on the bay side, not on the ocean side. Um, okay. So yeah, I'm I'm I was born in Redwood City. Um, lived in San Carlos when I was growing up, which was just like one city over. But like again, 
from like SFO down through like Mountain View, it might as well just be one city. You know, they're all kind of like um, stacked on each other. So it all blends together. Now that you say that, I do actually have memory of you guys repping Redwood City yeah. a lot. Okay. And I, mean, I think I, I think there's I a lot of history. Yeah, I think I thought of it as Half Moon Bay because is that where you guys did kind of like a fest? Was yeah, that what that was? Totally. Oh, yeah. And okay. and it's like it's all like uh, as Tony Molina would say six five oh, you know what I mean? Like it's all that it all it's all encompassing. Like it's basically, yeah, between like San Jose and and, and uh San Francisco. That that whole little chunk is like our you know, whatever, like we, we, we always would be fast to correct somebody. Like it's, we're not from the South Bay. Like that's San Jose. That's a whole <laughs> different thing. Cause like in the nineties, that was like an embarrassing, like rap rock Mecca down there. You know, uh, it was like, no, 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 don't, don't lump me in with those folks. You know, what's so funny is I'm glad you already kind of stated this. Cause I don't remember if I talked to George about it, but something that I've always found so fascinating about the Bay is just how, um, incredibly seemingly volatile it is between all of the different scenes that are only like three miles apart from one another there's a lot it's a, there's a lot in the bay i mean you, you know east bay west bay south bay north bay like there's there's a lot of cities all you know like major cities all kind of like encircling the area so like yeah you have little i guess there's you know regional whatever but like yeah and it gets discounted but the peninsula <laughs> you know, also known as the West Bay. That's where like Spaz was from. Like, yes. you know what I mean? Like, uh, a, like uh, a lot of early emo stuff or screamo stuff, like uh, Portraits of Past or, you know, whatever, and, and so on and so on. It's like, so we have a lot to claim and, we're, and we like to separate it from like, <laughs> you know, the rest. I just want to point out that, you know, everyone likes to say that, uh, you know, LA, it's like really a negative place and like no one's with <laughs> each other. But like, it, it, see, from my from my experience, everyone in LA, no matter what genre you're with, everyone for the most part, I mean, there's a lot of shit talking, of course, as, sure. as any place, but like, for the most part, everyone seems very supportive, but I like how the Bay is like, oh, I don't go to shows in Gilman. I only go to shows in FS. Or, no, or we, FS. No, we, we still support, but we, we want, we want like, we want credit where credit's due kind of thing. Uh, you know? <laughs> and we and we don't want to be lumped in with people who we kind of think are like uh you know arbiters of bad taste which we, again san jose came a really long way in the last like 25 <laughs> years you know with like asian man and like you know really amazing bands from down there and like it got very like diy and like all sorts of good shit was happening but like mid 90s it wasn't wasn't our thing you know george when you moved to the bay like the actual bay bay did, did this become very obvious to you right away or was this something that you uh had always kind of known about with how uh how vicious it can be no you definitely know about it yeah yeah it's it's uh there's there's different territories different scenes different, different people <laughs> the the thing that i that i really kind of admire today is this continuity between the bay and la these days or at least in my uh, yeah. perspective because that was something more more than anything else um, that we, we were always kind of raising an eyebrow to being like, eh, these people are behind and they don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. And just and, 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 and having like never even really gone to L.A., even I'll say like, like the first time I heard Touche being like, oh, they're doing like a Bay thing. Like, oh, wow. no but like but not like and not and not not derogatory just no, being, no, being I, like I being like 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 oh like people are people are catching on to this base everything is bay centric you know totally. like when you're in yeah. it you're in it and there is no one else and it's not necessarily against you you know other other scenes that you're just 
Maybe you just think, steal your hometown pride or whatever. Yes, exactly. It's just a lot sure. of pride, a lot of pride. It's funny. I was quick to be offended by that. But at the same time, I've always said that, like, we felt historically lonely in L.A. because we had no bands that we had anything relatable with. Like, sure. sonically. totally, totally. Sure. Whereas, like, Comadre was a band that we always looked to as, like, wow, those guys really, you know, paved the way and have done a lot of stuff that we've hoped to achieve and all of that sort of stuff. So like, I guess, you know, you're, you're in the that's right. Very, that's very sweet. Thank you. I mean, and, and I guess, yeah, we did have, I felt like we did have a handful of bands in the area that we felt like, you know, whatever, we were all on the same page with, or, you know what I mean? Like, especially the, that, like, when we first started, and again, this this definitely feeds into, like, studio life and, like, my whole fucking studio existence is like kind of right place right time a lot of p- kids doing diy music you know uh all in this area and like supporting each other and uh it was it was a great great time um let me ask you this so the first question i usually ask musicians um is when you were growing up what was the first thing that you remember connecting with musically that felt like it was yours maybe not something that like your parents were playing in the house but something that you discovered on your own that like kind of give you a sense of identity man uh it's a, that's a, such a good question and it's so hard to pinpoint that stuff and like at what age you kind of become self-aware and all that you know what i mean like uh and my parents weren't big uh on music they weren't big on art in general i, I wouldn't say you know what i mean um and so i like i have memories it's weird right we'd have we'd have this dude mark who would come by once a week and like do some just just basic house cleaning you know like like we leave him alone for a little bit and we we come home from like going grocery shopping or whatever it was and dude's like blasting the beach boys like on the, on the stereo in the house you know and i remember and like we never played music recreationally we never played music loud you know what i mean like it was just like a thing that might be in a movie or on tv or whatever but i remember just being like oh fuck yeah and and oddly enough the, the beach boys became like landmarks for like some of the other questions that you ask like first album first concert it it just so happens that those were also uh oh wow beach boys records beach boys concert like uh and and now now that i'm thinking back on it like my first concert was my 10th birthday uh in san carlos at this fucking raggedy little theater called the circle star theater that was like they had a circular stage that rotated around in like a circular you know you're in the round kind of thing um and i saw the beach boys on my 10th birthday so like i mean i i don't really remember much past that you know before any of that so i would i would have to say something in that you know right realm. uh so you i mean you play in a band you played in bands with your brother and everything like that he's younger i'm assuming right he's four and a half years younger but that didn't happen until i was like 18 and he was 14 right um mm-hmm. and so so yeah there's a lot of big gap between 10 and 18 obviously um but the the times where like the times that that i immediately think about like my musical identity kind of like happening was skateboarding and skate videos and stuff like that so i would have been more like 11 or 12 and like skate videos without question like the taste maker of my entire like musical you know appreciation and all that stuff because you're exposed to so much diverse uh material like all kind of crammed in and stuff that you maybe wouldn't even like when the first time you heard it you you hear it a hundred times in a row because you're watching these videos all the time um and there's there was one in particular the 92 plan b video uh called the questionable video the uh the soundtrack was fucking amazing it was like uh primus louis armstrong cat stevens the beastie boys um like 
shit like that. You know what I mean? Like all right, just yeah. piled up into the same thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's, it just, it, I don't know. There's, there's something about that. Um, and then, and, and that would kind of go on to progress. So like, yeah, through my teens and all that stuff. Um, and then of course to be, to be 13 years old in 1994, when like the pop punk explosion happened. Right. And I was very much that world of like epitaph and fat records and green day and offspring and all that shit. Totally. Yeah. No, that's a perfect right place, right time. It makes you, it's like on one side, you're like, man, I feel like the people who did the skate videos would be like incredible music supervisors in like this day and age. Seriously. But at the same time, from what I understand, I was not much of a skate kid, but like from what I understand it with those videos, it was often like whoever's scene that was, they often probably chose the song for it. Is that fair oh, to say? Uh, yeah. I think it depends on the, who's making the video and stuff. But yeah, I, th I think skaters kind of chose their own music, which is probably why the, it was so diverse. Um, also you get into like, like uh, there was this series of 411 video magazine. Uh, these, you know, they would come out periodically. It was like, it was a video magazine, but like you got the sense of like, Oh, they're using uh, something on an album that they got the rights to they're using every fucking song like over you know like somebody somebody got the rights to the blondie best of and like right. every fucking song on the blondie <laughs> best of was in the 411 video <laughs> magazine you know and um yeah and that's again that's a lasting memory like i think it was like 94 i got the, my first issue of that of this vhs series and it had the, the tide is high on it and I remember thinking, like, what the fuck is this even, this music? It's like this, like, mariachi, like, horns and, like, this girl singing. And, like, it's, like, kind of goofy. But, like, but then on the 50th fucking time that you see the video, it's like, damn, this is fucking, this is good. So, yeah, it's it, that I definitely credit that whole, like, culture and that world of, of kind of, you know, molding my taste. You know what I've never thought about is... Are any of these like old school skate videos on streaming services? Like, is there a streaming service that shows skate videos? Not that I know. I mean, not outside of like YouTube or something like that. But I mean, that that's yeah. a great thing. That is a great question. I don't know the answer, but but if there was, I would subscribe just for just for nostalgia's sake alone. You know what I mean? Is like, this a million dollar idea? Could be. Man. <laughs> could be. But yeah. uh, what made me think about that the long way around was like it's probably impossible to play those because of the rights to all of the songs that are on it. Yeah. I mean, maybe so there, and there's so many songs and there's, totally. and there's such a, and like, it really is like, it could be miles Davis. It could be fucking Jimi Hendrix. It could, you know what I mean? Like it, like anything. Um, so, so yeah. Uh, I think like when the wonder years got restreamed recently, they had to like replace a bunch of shit because like that was full of like, iconic totally. like 60s music and stuff like that so like the theme song isn't even the same that that was actually oh my god uh, yeah That's they had somebody horrible. else they had somebody re-record basically re-record the joe cocker cover of the beatles song and so it's like it's kind of just feels like this muzak thing um but like i mean even just that right hearing that song when you watch the fucking wonder years when you're a kid it, it's just like damn this fucking hits you know like uh <laughs> yeah so Anyway, yeah, that's that that was the earliest I can remember for like, you know, my my exposure to music anyway. I forget George, were you a skate kid at all? Like did that did that have any some similarities with you? No, no, it didn't. Um I mean, eventually when like middle late middle school and in high school, uh a lot of my friends uh skated and we would kind of just like hang out. But no, in in the areas that I grew up in um i felt like it was really devoid of a lot of that culture um and certainly uh where it existed it was more designated for like older teens um so i got into music through like the radio 
and then right. and then going um there's a magazine store down a few blocks from the apartment that we lived in uh and it carried like circus and hit parader and stuff like that and like punk and stuff didn't really make it there you know what i mean um so that's right you and i talked a hell of a lot of new metal we did yeah, yeah. And, that, and it was just it was like it was the only it was like the the it was it was what alternative was right um and uh and so yeah you no, know, I feel you it. Just, you, you do with what you can, but <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But then um, it, it expands quickly, though. Like like Jack was saying, like twelve, thirteen. Then you're like, oh, okay, here's a whole world here, and you're hanging out with friends, and you're getting recommendations, and totally people are sharing, and yeah, totally. So I, I'm curious, Jack. You know, one of the questions I had was, you know, first album you remember buying yourself. Um, I was curious, maybe post your introduction to the skate video world and now you're hearing all these different diverse bands uh do you remember the first album that you bought once inspired by that or like some of the first stuff that you bought mm, like what you gravitated question. to i i just had a memory as you guys were talking of columbia house and like bmg and all that stuff right and like i had a an older you know like uh, a fake cousin you know somebody like my aunt who's not really my aunt kind of like her kid you know like uh, another he was... person who just comes by and cleans the house <laughs> uh, no, the, we, there was a there was a guy who was a, a, a person I grew up with who was four years older than me who was like okay. ahead of you know. Um, and I remember getting exposed to like yeah, Columbia House, whatever. You just go on and and you know uh, the greatest hack nuts. of all time. Here's yeah. a penny, and you get yeah. twenty five CDs. That's right, and then you cancel your <laughs> subscription, and then yep. you re up it again. So like yep. I, I did, I did build up quite a uh, CD collection, and I now that I'm thinking about it, like I I was into I don't know what led you know like it probably escape videos but like i had a bunch of like 90 early 90s like r&b stuff like um whatever um shit it's been so long josie like and the, you know like, all like that. the new jack swing sort of like yeah oh, DeVoe, like you know what stuff. actually one oh, of the first yeah. things i remember buying was the new jack city soundtrack uh oh, yeah because i loved that movie because we were like we were like uh you know all those kind of movies were on in my house when we were all growing up. I, I still like, I watched lethal weapon recently for the first time. And I was like, they let us watch this as like, <laughs> as like 11 year olds, you know, in the opening yeah. scene, a, a woman commits suicide. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. in the opening scene of the whole movie anyway. And Mel Gibson is suicidal the whole time. Dude. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, I remember watching New Jack city being really stoked on just the movie. And so then I wanted to get the soundtrack and like, and I remember a whole, it was a whole discussion about like, well, there's a parental advisory thing on the front. Like, is this even appropriate? Um, that's it. That was an early one where like, I just remember being at the mall and like wandering into whatever the music store was and being like, I want to get this tape, you know? Um, and it was a whole discussion, but then we ended up, you know, getting it. And uh, but yeah, I was really into like early '90s R&B and hip hop, and like, and then um, pop punk stuff. And like, yeah, I don't know. Uh, and and then Columbia House is like, there's no one record, right? They're coming in fucking like dozens, you know. So um, <laughs> I I did just get a lot of shit, it just kind of based on like whatever I thought, you know. Here's so, something that when it comes to the Columbia House thing that I don't know is. Cause I remember I was getting the ads, but I never got to, I never got to, to use them, but I was curious, how quick was the turnaround? On pretty those? quick, pretty quick. I, I don't remember be, ever being like bummed or anything that it was taking too long, you know? Um, and looking back on it too, like there was a pretty diverse variety in there. Like, and, and I would get stuff like I got bad religion, like stranger than fiction, you know, that was 94. Right. So I didn't, right. even, I didn't even know what I was ordering. You know, I think I remember hearing like infected on the radio and then for years, I only even listened to that song. You know what I mean? Cause I was like, yeah. whatever. And then a couple of years later, 
like I think it's the song after Infected on that on that record. Tim Armstrong s- sings on it, and I was like, "What? Like you know, like, <laughs> like, is, like is this band cooler than I realized?" Uh, right. And yes, they were. So, um, yeah. I mean, I don't know, man. It's kind of a mishmash. Uh, and like once we get into like fourteen, fifteen, everything kind of got more like focused on like totally. Y- yeah, you know, like specifics. But um, but a lot happened between I would say between like eleven, twelve, and fourteen, fifteen it was kind of a barrage of, of, uh, every fucking music, you know? So yeah, I don't know if that is, is a good answer or not. No, but, it's a great answer, <laughs> but it's the answer. <laughs> I mean, I, that experience of listening to a song, the one song off the record that you're familiar with, which is the reason you bought the record. And then the song after it for like the yes. first six months of owning the record is my full listening experience. When I was a teenager, I would almost all my beloved records. I listened like CDs, listen the first six months, it'd be the single that I was familiar with and yep. naturally the song that came after it. And, and so yeah, tons of my favorites are built up on that. It's really funny how cool. you would have to kind of go about it that way. You know, For I would sure. even imagine that like singles were picked where one single was on like the first half of the record and then the other one was on the second half to make sure that the listener got a full spectrum. I would like yeah. think that as a kid. Yeah, you know, I don't mm-hmm. know. Odd. Anyway, it's always funny when you go back and you realize that like the single was like the last song on the record. You're like, what the fuck? Yeah, like that's like, man, the record company was desperate to to pick something on here. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, Jack, I was curious, when was guitar your first instrument, and when did you start learning how to play guitar? Guitar was my first instrument. I started learning when I was twelve. Uh. A, a kid that lived down the street from me who was like my best friend at the time. I remember he got a guitar for fucking, you know, some hundred dollar guitar or whatever for Christmas. And I was like, well, I want a fucking guitar, you know? So like we went and got me a shitty guitar and, uh, and we were started taking lessons, uh, together actually, which well, was, that's helpful. yeah, it was interesting. Um, it was kind in of a way kind of helps you keep each other accountable in a childlike way, at least a, where it's a like, little bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, and like, but it was one of those things where it's like, when you go to guitar lessons with somebody who's like just some dude who works at a guitar store or whatever, some old guy who like doesn't really yeah. know your music and like whatever, they're teaching you like how to read music and like how to like play some stock shit, you know? And it's like nothing is exciting about it. It's a whole chore to like even want to practice it, you know? And then it was like, well, hey, can we just learn some songs that I like? Like, I don't care about reading music, you know? Like that I can't see ever using this, you know? Even even then, it was just like, this feels like a waste of time. Um, and then with anything, I guess, like as soon as you learn to teach yourself a little bit, you know, like, like here's some principles. Like if you listen, you can, you can figure some shit out by ear. Then it was like, okay, we don't need these lessons anymore. Like, let's just fucking, you know, start doing it. Um, a thousand so, percent. yeah. Yeah. No, that's uh, very similar to my experience where it was like my first, I remember the, I, t- I took four classes. The first one was how to tune your instrument. The yeah, second one man. was like, here's a couple chords. And then the third one was like, all right, I'm going to start teaching you how to read music. And I was like, right. Nah, nah. What? Like, yeah. This, this is not fun at all. Well, and I was like, when my brother uh, got a little older, right? So I, if I was 12, he was real young. We didn't really get along when we were super young, right? By the time he was maybe 13 and I was, you know, uh, 16 or plus, yeah. 17, um, he wanted to play guitar because I played guitar. And I was like, no, 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 no. You're going to play bass. Uh, like, uh, it, like we've, there's guitar players are a dime a dozen, you know, like, and, um, and I did kind of teach him how to teach himself. And he just fucking 
took off with it and and still is the the best bass player i've played with you know like he's oh, like awesome. and he was crazy about we were we loved rancid you know what i mean and, and um and still do really um and and so he got into figuring out rancid songs at a really early age and so at 14 he was kind of shredding the bass you know um that is this a, little kid yeah, that um, is a fucking technical bass player yeah right yeah and so um anyway but that that's how that's how the I started on guitar. I started with guitar lessons and, and a friend. Uh, and I think I know where this is going, by the way. You want to yeah. know the first song I learned how to play? Yeah. What was the first song you remember <laughs> learning how to play? It was No Rain by Blind Melon. Ooh. God, that's a good one. And, wow. and it was and it was extra good because because there were two of us. One one guy played rhythm and one guy played the lead part. You know what I mean? Um, and so so I got the lead part, which is not difficult in any, in any way, but like, you know, it's like that. Um, Did you have like the guitar? Cause isn't there, is it like a strong chorus pedal going on in that? Oh no, you know, we know we didn't know shit about effects yeah, or anything say, like I that. I was about to say, like, I feel like the, the sustain on that. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's pretty like naked, you know, uh, sure. it's, it's an awkward thing to learn when you don't know how to play guitar, but, um, but yeah, so that was the first song I learned how to play on guitar. Jesus, man. Way to fucking flex. I feel like most people are like, you know, fucking come smoke. as you are. <laughs> smoke on the water. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> I mean, the beginning of no rain is not much harder than any of those songs, you know? Uh, sure. but I, I, yeah. A, a quick side quest really fast. Yeah. I, I want when did you, <laughs> it's a two-parter. Uh, when did you first hear ACDC? Oh, that's a great and, question. And, and why are they the best? <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, I, you know, I feel like ACDC just existed forever, right? Like, you know, they who did. knows they when did. it's the first time you hear it, right? It's, just, it's, it's part of the fabric of like, of life, right? It so, is. Um, and, and to be clear, right? So George is referring to like, I've historically used Back in Black as a as a recording reference for like oh. basically anything. Like be, just yeah. because, and, and again, it's not really because ACDC is good. It's because the recording's super good. Um, but I mean, no no shade, of course. I, no, I do it. like ACDC a lot, but um, Love but no, uh, Back in Black is probably, it's, it's, it's a very widely accepted example of like a very perfectly balanced rock recording. You know, the tones are just like, perfect uh the balance yeah. is pretty fucking and it's 1980 you know what i mean like to think that they that they kind of you know i mean like they did pretty well before that but like like the modern rocks sound is like it's that to me you know and so um yeah it's very common while you're in the studio i might be mixing something or like working on some tone <laughs> and all of a sudden you'll hear oh, yeah. the chorus of back in black come on full volume because <laughs> i just need i need like to reset my brain to be like well how are we doing you know so wow um, yeah and that shit by the way all that reference stuff for me comes from like art art school like i went to school for illustration um and reference is a big deal like you don't just like make it you don't just draw something or like paint something or whatever just like straight out of your head you know what i mean like if you're gonna draw a fucking whatever a sea turtle uh you you like get 10 pictures of sea turtles and you put them around where you're working so that you can like see you know what i mean you just go by your memory of what a fucking sea turtle looked like you know course, like yeah, uh and so for me uh from the start of recording uh reference has been super important so like my, my references have changed a lot over the last 20 years but uh but back in black is still in there it doesn't get used quite as often as it as it did i found some newer ones where they've kind of pushed it a little further you know mm -hmm. um but like <laughs> But it's still really fucking good. It is. I like it is. Back in Black is the uh, like the sound guy's version of Digital Bath from Deftones. 
Oh, I yeah, feel yeah. like any any time any tour you're on, someone's yeah. front of house is gonna just as soon as they're checking the PA, it's always fucking it's fair. digital math. Yeah, it, and so, like once you know something that trans, that, that's the other thing too, right? The fight of in in the studio always, or like the struggle is like this needs to sound as good as it does in here everywhere else that it gets played, you know, which is a challenge. Yeah. And so um, when you find something like that that you can trust and you can test it everywhere you ever go, and then you can use that as your reference while you're working, then it's like, you're you're like, you're trying to jump ahead a bit to like, to you know, the trial and error of like, just trying to shit to get this shit to translate. Um, so it's like, oh, I know this translates really, really well across every system I play it on, you know, so like, let's just listen to it for a minute. Where do you land on because I know another one that I, I hadn't heard the back and black one, but that makes a lot of sense. Where do you land on the color and the shape? I feel like I've known a few people that have talked about that. Not so much. Not into it. Now, it's like like, uh, of course, the music is amazing. And, and sure. but it's like mid 90s radio rock. Right. So like when you listen to it now, to me, it feels a little bit flat in in that there's like not a lot of sub like low end. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's also pretty. So like it's already kind of flat because of that. And then it's pretty compressed, uh, like. And so it's loud and there's a lot of like kind of harshness like to it. So like, I, I, I just feel like if, if you want to turn it up, it kind of hurts pretty quick. You know what I mean? Like it's wow, kind of, it's, yeah. it's kind of fatiguing. So I wouldn't use it as a reference personally. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, even back in black to me by, by modern standards is like, it's just, just like filled out like full frequency enough to like hold up. But like, we've gone past that uh, you sure. know like like yeah. systems have gotten better you know like um modern like current pop production is fucking on point right now like like every shit is just like jumping out of speakers it's loud as all hell but it doesn't feel like it's over compressed or squished it's not fatiguing like there's a everybody's doing really good shit right now so it's it's a uh, yeah so your references can kind of change totally quickly. yeah no that's, that's interesting that's a great answer thank you um what was the first band you did oh man so okay so because <laughs> because i was into pop punk and like fat records and epitaph stuff epitaph stuff really early on too so like uh i was in a pop punk band in high school yeah called, called one down uh it, it was not good and uh yeah but that was my those were my formative years you know um yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you just play guitar I actually played guitar and sang in this. Program. Oh, that's what I wanted to hear. Yeah, <laughs> <maybe>. <laughs> uh, and, and I think that was just a de facto, you know, like, like nobody else was going to do it. So somebody's got to do this, you know, like I'm not a I'm not a particularly gifted singer or lyricist, to be uh, to be frank. So <laughs> well, is, I, is it on a hard drive somewhere? You know, I actually don't think so. No, because uh, this was before. Well, and I'll tell you why. When we get into the next thing about like early recordings, uh, yeah. it was like low tech, like real low tech. <laughs> like there's no there. There might like it, it would be a cassette somewhere, yes, maybe yeah. if I was cool. if I was lucky, you know. But thankfully, it's not on the internet. So, <laughs> so when did this band start, and like how long did it actually last? You, you mentioned it was like a high school band, sort of. Yeah. A deal. I think I was, I don't know, 14, 15, yeah. 16, something like that uh, span. And uh, so, yeah, a few years probably. And um, and it was, you know, first band, first show, like first shows, first like all of that, you know. Um, what was the and, first, okay, so then what was the first show you played? Well, the first show, like, like the first show I played with that band 
which was like maybe the second time I ever performed in public, you know, because uh, the, the first public performance was like a couple of like covers with like in some our friend's dad was playing like his his the cover band was playing in the park in like Redwood City or something like that. Uh-huh. And we were probably four, 15 or something. What um, did you cover? I think we did we did two rancid songs. Yeah, uh, we did. I want to say Roots Radicals because that's like a staple. Uh, I, I didn't sing in this, by the way. And okay. then uh, and then um, St. Mary, which was a song off of Let's Go, which is also quite good. Uh, okay. And then and then uh, um, I th- if I remember right, it was only three songs. And one of them was an original that that the dude who was singing wrote, uh, which was, I think, kind of Nirvana. Worship. And is that the same band or is that a different band? I mean, that wasn't even a band. That was just like, we're going to let's play it. My dad's thing, you know. Totally, um, yeah. But that was my first time playing in public. Uh, and then. The first real show, I guess, was there was this place in Palo Alto, downtown Palo Alto called The House. And it was like some tiny little community center um, just off of like the main downtown strip. And I think it's a parking lot now, uh, or like parking garage and like that. But like I remembered when I would um, somebody I I don't know where this even came from. So when I, I, I grew up, I went to Catholic school until like fifth grade or something. And then we went to public school um, because my dad finally put his foot down. It's like, I'm not paying for this shit anymore. (laughs) Uh, And like, at that point we we had like, we weren't, we were like very anti-religious, all of us. And it's like, why are we doing this? You know, like why, like we don't, I don't, mom, I don't believe in any of this. Like, why are you making me do all this shit? But anyway, but at one of the like after school programs that we were still fucking going to in like early high school, some, some people came by and they were involved in this like DIY community space. And they kind of brought up the idea of like, oh, yeah, bands play whatever. Like, here's a flyer for a thing. Uh, And somehow our band ended up playing a show down at this spot. Um, And it was it was great. I mean, I saw tons of bands play at that at that place, like Fury 66. If anybody knows who that band is, you know, (laughs) uh, cred. Uh, But like bands like this, they were like from Santa Cruz and like people that were doing like, yeah, like local local punk stuff. Um, But yeah, that was that was the first one. Did anyone from the band that you played in the this uh wasn't what was it called one more time one, one down one down yeah one word one down all all lowercase of course right. uh <laughs> did that did anyone from that band go on to play in anything else no I don't I don't know if uh no I don't think so I mean my my brother eventually was in that band oh okay uh, actually and so um but no and then what happened there was there was a little bit of a crossover we started uh. You know, we start playing shows. You start meeting people from outside of your immediate area. We we crossed over with these San Mateo kids that were doing this kind of dark, like, ska punk stuff that kind of sounded like, I don't even know, AFI with, like, hor- with horns, basically. Oh, all right. Uh, uh, and, and, uh, and eventually, my brother and I ended up joining that band, uh, which was called Anti-45, uh, because 45 was the channel that um, MTV was on in, in like 1995 or whatever. That's uh, incredible. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that was the vibe back then. So. Man, Anti-45, that's so <laughs> and And that band actually went to have like local popularity and like People okay. occasionally still bring cool. up that band. Uh, wow. And, it, cool. and, and so that gets into like, that brings us all the way to like 2000, maybe 2001. Okay. Um, I graduated high school in 99. And so like, that's what I was doing at the end was playing this kind of ska punk, uh, but yeah. like not really ska, like not like, not like real big fish ska. Like, uh, I don't even know. And, and again, at some point we abandoned the like, the like ska up, up stroke guitar and it was like it really just sounded like like afi like black sails but with like 
these epic horn parts. Uh, right. So oh, man, how ahead of a time with anti forty five with that Trump reference, huh? It was, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Could should have stayed together. Um, I know, huge but, reunion. Anyway, yeah. So that that uh, that was. I think that was the the end of like feeling like we were doing like once that band was over and we kind of moved on to do new music. My brother and I, it, it felt like after that we started doing stuff that we were like proud of <laughs> or, or like not, not not that we weren't proud of that but like no i get that, it that didn't feel like high school anymore you know what i mean and that's yeah. what yeah. it was like really into thursday really into like uh whatever um refused um and did you know started playing like more kind of emo screamo music and like that got us to eventually got us to comadre stuff um so you mentioned first record so that uh the high school band did record oh man yeah so first recording right so like we know nothing about recording, nothing at all, right? We've never been to a recording studio, don't know even about like get a four track, n nothing, nothing, right? So like we had some, I had a PA head that I bought so that we could like have practice. Um, I also had, we had a borrowed like other PA head. These are powered mixers basically, right? Like, um, and we got this bright idea that at my parents' house, there was a um, a hallway where like there were, three small bedrooms and a bathroom off this one hallway right and it's like hey so all right if we string these pa systems together we can borrow a bunch of fucking the shittiest mics you ever could imagine and like we could put each element in a different room and then close all the doors and we could stand in the hallway and play uh without without having to have headphones on or anything like that because we didn't have a headphone system right yeah and so and then so and then all these so like drums were literally in a room with some mics. There was two different guitar cabinets in two different rooms, which is completely unnecessary, by the way, um, <laughs> in two different rooms. And then a bass cab, I think, was in the bathroom with the mixer and shit. And um, and which is also a terrible choice for everybody, anybody <laughs> wanting to do this. Um, and so and, and the, the bright idea was we'll record all these things in isolation. Vocals were done in the hallway uh like like so you could hear everything coming from these other rooms with all the doors closed and then you could do vocals pretty isolated and then all of that shit would funnel down like the one pa head was in the bedroom with the drums and all those those mics then went to like two channels on the the <laughs> other thing right and then the guitar and then the whatever and the vocals and all that shit would then funnel down to my like home stereo system like the aux in right that would then just record stereo onto a cassette just a regular old consumer cassette right and so i didn't know this at the time but when professionals do it like this this is considered like complete baller shit like it's called live to two track and like <laughs> nobody does it because it's really difficult because you have to the performance is 100 percent live the mixing is 100 percent live right like everything you're doing instead of recording to a multi-track recorder like a 24 track tape machine or like a computer or even a four track you're recording everything at once to these final two tracks and that's the recording and you're done and so like you have to kind of like there's a trial and error of like okay let's just record a little bit and see how it sounds and then you have to make adjustments without hearing what you're adjusting because you have right. you have to you know what i mean and so you're kind of guessing your way to a proper mix you do that until it sounds good enough um and then and then you just get good takes and you're fucking done and like you got you got your fucking recording so am i to understand this was all like your thought process to do this like or was yeah this, were you, okay i mean granted Pretty. it sounds like a 
very stressful disaster. But at the same time, it shows that you had the intuition to at least try these different Dude, things, right? And infinitely more advanced than than my early memories of trying to record music. Infinitely That's funny. more advanced. <laughs> I mean, it, it was very, it, I mean, it feels really primitive, you know, but like in the end, it was, I, I have it. I had to dig around to see if I can find that, this recording because it is somewhere in my life. Um, but like in the end, it was like, I even think we had the wherewithal to like pan the guitars, you know, so one's hard over here, one's hard over there. That already is like, you won because now you've established like, at least a stereo field. I get demos from people that are working in GarageBand where I'm like, hey, this sounds okay. Like, could you pan something? You know, it's all just like in mono. And they're like, what do you mean? And so um, we at least figured that out of like, hey, this guitar should be here. That guitar should be there. You know, we'll do some drum shit, whatever. Um, so my memory of it is that it actually didn't sound too bad. Uh, but like, but who knows? It's been, it's been, that was um, probably 25 years ago or something, you know? Right. I mean, again, I'm still impressed that you at least had the intuition to like try all that usual stuff, you know, like, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know if we would have even, it would have dawned on us. Like, I don't know what else we would have done. You know what I mean? Like we didn't go to like, ask anybody like, Hey, how should sure. we do this? You know, or like we did in there, it was way before computer audio was like accessible, you know? Um, I don't even think we had a home computer that we did like some busted little like fucking thing where you could go on AOL, you know, like oh, dial yeah, up, yeah. you know, like it was really not uh yeah that was not a thing so um yeah i don't know it, it, it is what it is uh for better or worse from what i understand you so you recorded all the camadre stuff though right yeah okay so did you i'm assuming at some point you went to a studio that wasn't you yourself trying to record your band i did okay I did. what band was that for uh there was a band uh in fuck oh okay so it, one of the guys in anti-45 who yeah. is still one of my best friends to this day, uh, he was getting into recording a little bit. And so he had like a little standalone recorder. And so when we did, I guess when we did the anti-45 stuff, we did do, we did, um, but that would have been post this. Yeah. So like the next, my next experience was my buddy Lev recording us on his little standalone recorder. And, um, and the quality was really bad because again, you're kind of just guessing your way to how this shit works, right? So yeah. like it it could have sounded better, I think, with one of these things, but it was like a, it was like a standalone little hardware recorder that would record to its own little internal hard drive, or you had to burn CDs or something like that. Um, but the way it was set up, it, it all sounded like MP3s by the time we were done, you know, in it, before MP3s even existed. It had this right, weird yeah. lasery fucking quality to it, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so so we did we did do that, and that was kind of fun. And uh, there was another band um, called Guilt Trip. And when this was like, I would have been like very early, like junior college. So this would have been like 2001, 2000, maybe. Um, and it was kind of like lag wagon worship. It, I was just playing guitar in this band. We did go to some studio. I can't even remember the name of it, but it was, um, it was kind of whatever, you know, it was like, oh, it sounds okay. You know, and, and our, a friend of ours, his dad was an engineer up in Sausalito like in, in that same band, the drummer's dad. And so like we went and recorded with him, which was also kind of a bad experience because dude wanted to like produce this like pop punk band, but like he's like a Grateful Dead guy, you know? And it's like, <laughs> and it's kind of just like, oh man, come on. And then like, and, and so, and then uh, another experience what happened where like I was playing in this kind of heavier band. This was like the beginning of more legit music. There was a band called Betray the Species, which was like, and I Hard. encourage anybody to look that up. Proud of this. Uh, where that's the beginning of it being like, uh, worthwhile uh endeavors endeavors but like i joined this band that was some friends that were doing it's kind of isis e kind of like um zayo 
like okay. really long form songs and shit, like 25 minute song, you know, it's the whole set, the whole record. And I remember going to record and having the engineer be like, you can't record a 25 minute long song. Like, come on, that's ridiculous kind of thing. And it's like, well, like, why not? You know, like, and he's <laughs> like, no, you got to break it up. Like you're gonna have to do this and that and the other thing. But anyway, all these experiences stacked up made internally. I was kind of like, you know what? We got to get all these fucking people out of the way. You know, like we want to just do what we want to do without any interference basically you know um and and so yeah so my 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 good buddy lev like shepherded me into this this world of like this was like right when uh pro tools had become a little bit more accessible to just Mm -hmm. the consumer and so he sold me my first pro tool system which was in 2003 like august of 2003 right and that's it man we just fucking from there to here just feels like boom like that's how it went so cool. I, yeah because i was curious like you didn't go to recording school did you i did not okay so was everything just sort of like you figuring it out on your own and just like step by step figuring out how to get to where you are now yeah Le- Le- lev taught me how to impressive. use pro tools because he knew how to use pro tools yeah but he was one of those guys who like he really liked recording and stuff but he didn't like recording other people like okay. he liked working on his own shit but he like he didn't have it, have it in him to like deal with other the bullshit of bands you know yeah. and so he shot me to he taught me how to use pro tools for the most part and he was my like 24 hour like online like or like you know like like tech support we always yeah, we joked about yeah, 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 that yeah. that scene from vanilla sky where he's like having a meltdown and he's just <laughs> screaming tech support uh uh and so yeah so he he helped me a lot with that and um and it was like pretty hardcore trial and error at the time i was in a band like a like emo band with my brother uh three-piece band this was right before Commandre, and we were in the middle of recording a record and the drummer of the band was was also doing home recording a bunch of us at this point had gotten into home recording because it was like you could just go buy pro tools now um and uh we were mixing this record that we had recorded some with my buddy lev some with the drummer of this band and i was like this doesn't sound right this doesn't feel right like i had just gotten pro tools and i I was like you know what let me get all the shit let let me let me just take a stab at this and so i mixed this full length for this for this band that we were in and that was kind of my initiation into all this stuff and it was something as simple as like i know what i want this to sound like i have no idea how to make it sound that way but like let's just figure it out and so you know yeah it's just it's it's so impressive to me because i'm like even you know you having a tape machine it's like a very expensive risk to like you know like the trial and error of all of that stuff and also i mean there's times where i've walked into a studio and i look at that big ass board you know mm-hmm. like the huge mixing boards and i'm just thinking to myself this guy doesn't fucking know what everything on this thing does because <laughs> <laughs> you only ever see people touching a few things on it i'm like you don't know what that fucking top right button does they're dece- it's it is deceiving how like they're not nearly as complicated as they look. And there's so much repetition <laughs> that like, if you, if you know what one s- vertical strip does, you know, it's okay. usually that same thing 40, 40 times, times, you know? Okay. So, so yeah, it's not, it's not as bad as you, as you'd think, but it is overwhelming <laughs> when you first, yeah, deal with it. But, but I mean, going into like analog stuff and all that, that was a slow kind of crawl of, of like, it was all digital at the start, you know? Looking for an extraordinary coffee? Look no further than Heartwork Coffee. With eight years of excellence and proudly roasting in the vibrant city of San Diego, California, visit heartworkcoffeebar.com to explore a wide range of single origin and blended coffees to suit your taste preference. 
On a personal note, co-founder Rob Moran has played in so many bands that have inspired me personally, like Unbroken and Some Girls, for example, and it's been amazing watching Heartwork thrive all these years. The coffee is amazing, and I'm thrilled to support this company. Once again, visit heartworkcoffeebar.com to place an order. That is H-E-A-R-T, work, coffeebar.com. Was Camaraderie the first band that you toured with? Yes. What was the first tour? Um, so there's a lot of debate about this. What counts as a tour? Like, how long does it have to be to be a tour? Okay, how far do you have to go? That's a fair question. Um, so I'm so that being said, I'm assuming you guys did a lot of weekend warrior stuff. Maybe, of course, yeah, sure. That's how you start, right? I mean, like we sure. went to we go to like Reading and like uh, Medford, Oregon, or something like that, you know, and then like <laughs> yeah. come come Cross back. Lines. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So then, what was how about your first like week long tour? Yeah, I, or, or leaving state. Leaving. Yeah, right. Uh, I think we did. Fuck, man, it's a little it's a little blurry, but it would have been like 2004 like maybe the winter 2004, 2005, um, we probably did a West coast run and we would have in like, and we did like a lot of those. So they all kind of mushed together, you know, but it would have been something like, you know, going to Southern California, maybe going to Arizona, um, up into like Colorado, um, and like in Idaho and, and maybe Washington and all that stuff, you know, like just a, a little loop that might've been 10 days or, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. th- those would have been the first. And there was, a, there was just a lot of those in the beginning. So, um, yeah, that would have been it. Like, yeah, so we did a lot of winter because, you know, people were in school and whatever. So you, you, you're on, on school schedule. So um, that was the, the start of it. Something that I bring up to people now and again when I think about your band and when it comes to DIY touring is that I witnessed you guys very early on beat the game on hard, which was you guys touring with your own PA. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, which best. is the smartest thing I've ever seen a DIY band do because for people listening, people who play in bands, people who are currently DIY touring, you know what it's like to show up to the house show and then you're handed a mic, which is plugged into a guitar amp, which you're like, well, no one's hearing me tonight. I don't think, and I, heard, I, don't think I was heard for the first six years of performing. That's exactly Barely in any yeah. band. Yeah. yeah. You're playing house shows, you're playing basements, you're playing, you know, rec centers where like there is no, workable pa system it's just feeding back everyone's louder than you um so the fact that i would watch you guys drag in this pa system <laughs> right before your set which i was just like oh it's so smart you're even just yeah. you guys you're not letting the whole show use it we're not, not trying to work at the show you know yeah like, <laughs> no, i fucking get it um what i'm i'm just curious for my own sake when did you guys start doing that was that early, was that an early realization I mean, uh, probably not, you know, um, I'm sure there were plenty of shows where nobody heard the vocals, you know, but like there was a time where we really started caring about how we sounded live and, and really had it dialed in to the point where it's like, and and we had the PA system for practice anyway, it wasn't that big, you know, it's like, Hey, we should just bring this with us. Cause we also, again, for bands or people listening, right? Like often most, uh, physical setups at a live show there's there's like for diy shows there's no monitors or anything like that right and and like and the pa is often in front of the band right so you can't even hear what's coming out of the pa system and um it's super frustrating uh and so we uh 
figured out a way to set up the PA behind us instead of in front of us. It would just be part of our backline, basically. And so it's it acted as our monitors, but it also like it also blended because the, the other thing about the PA being way the fuck in front of the band is that the vocals are this whole separate entity that aren't like coming from like the rest of the you know. And so by making the PA part of the backline, all of a sudden it's one uniform thing. It sounds like it's, it comes at you as you know all together and very well balanced. And like I would even early days I would have a mixer on my fucking like it's just a tiny mixer on my guitar amp so i could adjust the vocal level and stuff like that like as 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 i wanted you know um and so we became very self-contained in that way because then not only like do you sound the way you want but you can literally play anywhere that has a fucking power outlet you know what i mean Um, yeah and like and so and of course that like that leads to all sorts of arguments and um and and shit talking because i again we also preferred to play on the floor if there was a venue with a stage right and um sometimes most of the time you get just like a no dude or like or you get yelled at or you get like you know but occasionally somebody goes like oh yeah that's fucking cool yeah let's do that you know and so i was always the guy who had to go and talk to somebody, right? And so um, there, and and there are some there's some glorious stories where like where it worked like even better than I could, ever could have imagined. And there was times where I literally got my ass chewed in front of like a whole venue worth of staff and bands and stuff like that. Um, and both of those stories, by the way, are good. Uh, but <laughs> but yeah, so the PA thing, it was just you know as we. Got for I can't remember what year we started doing it, and we we also part of the early recordings of of Commander stuff is we would we had a PA the, the early PA was pretty shitty and it distorted quite a bit, and yeah. some of the early records, it's Juan singing into the PA and me miking the PA and like that was the like dirty vocal sound that we got. Oh, um, that's interesting. Yeah, and there was also I think that PA had a reverb thing on it, and you, and when you hit it, the reverb tank would you know, blah, 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 blah. and so that sound is also all over the, those records because you would just like hit the PA's head. And it would like send this this boinging reverb sound out of the speakers. And we got to the point where I started taking the reverb tanks out of some of our amps and wiring them up to the PA so he could just hold it and just hit it on stuff Uh, like just a loose uh, reverb tank, you know, with these springs all dangling about. And so like, yeah, you hear that. That's on a lot of the early like few records um, that it's a pretty recognizable sound when you hear it. Wow. That's awesome. Um, Damn what what was the first international tour you guys did i think it was japan um flex yeah well and again right place right time right so like um my sweet my sweet sweet boy dan africa who's actually here right now he's in my house right now he moved to germany like 12 years ago and he's here right now that man that man still prints all of our tour merch he's a he's a (laughs) golden god um so uh his old band does he know german yet I, some I, I i see him say <laughs> i heard him say a couple things but yeah uh so <laughs> he uh so dan, dan was was ahead of us by a few years in like doing bands and touring and all that stuff and like yeah. his old band underdying son had had gone to japan with um a bunch of american bands it was like it was underdying son and funeral diner and i think box the compass went also and some other uh and so they had these connections and one of their their good buddies this, this band Enswick from japan who's still a, a band i believe in japan um they were coming to do this kind of short west coast tour and dan had like orchestrated all of it and um this was like very early camadre like first year or two and as it approached 
Dan was dealing with some shit in his life and whatever. He was uh, staying with me a bunch and like true, uh, true homie time. Uh, but he was like, yo, I, don't, I, I need somebody to like handle this tour. And at the time we had a legit van. We had a legit backline and we had jobs that would let us just kind of like take off for a little bit. And so we ended up like basically tour managing and playing this, this Enswick West coast tour. Right. And so, and it was a fucking blast and we had a good old time. And like, we went, you know, it was like Reno and down in LA and, and up North a bit and, and all that stuff. And so the drummer from Enswick does this record label called cosmic note in Japan. It's a pretty prominent, like they were, they were up and coming then. Uh, and it's pretty prominent now, but like, of course, Uchi was like, oh, well, we have to put out your record. Your next record has to come out in Japan. And like, you guys have to come to Japan. And it, it was it's a totally, you know, I don't, not random, but just like, it just kind of like the fucking stars align. And so um, when we did Burn Your Bones with our second full length, which they, we'd barely been a band for a couple of years. We're in Japan playing for people who have no yeah. idea who we are, but we're playing with this band, Enswick, who like everybody loves and knows. And so that was the, that was like our first dip into that, that world. And so it was, um, it was a little bit big for our britches, I guess, at the time. But like, uh, but what it an experience, out, though. Yeah, it worked out really great. Super positive. But we ended up going to Japan three times. We went to Europe three times. Um, we uh, went to Puerto Rico and Mexico uh, and Malaysia and Australia. Like by the time we were done, it was it was uh, yeah, it was cool. It, it really like took off there for a minute. <laughs> I have a good story where the first time Touche did Japan, uh, Uchu did it. And oh, yeah. uh, it was us in Loma. And mm-hmm. uh, we slept on his uh, office floor for 10 days yes. um, for the whole tour and us and Loma together. But there was a really funny instance where when we were at at the airport in Japan, like do, dealing with immigration, mm-hmm. um, you know how like especially then you had to like fill out like where you're going to be staying and like right. your contact and all mm-hmm. that stuff. And um, we wrote Uchu and they were like... <laughs> And they're like, what do you mean? And we're like, we're like, yeah, we're staying with this gentleman, Uchu. And then they're like, Spaceman? Yeah. <laughs> we didn't know it was we didn't know it was a it wasn't his real name. Yeah. No, no, you were staying with Akifumi Mochizuki. Uh, that's go. what yeah. they wanted to hear. Uh, but yeah, they're like, Uchu. Uh, they're like spaceman? He like, is oh, he is shit. a fucking spaceman. Yeah. I love that dude. Um I haven't seen him in a long time, but Same. but yeah. So that that was um it, part of that that uh Enswick trip by the way we, we had this dvd that we sold for a while of this live show that happened in redwood city that was like it's like three four hundred kids and like it was Enswick's first show in the in the bay area and um burial year and end on end and comadre and and Enswick all played and it was like a amazing show and we filmed it all with multiple cameras and like made a dvd i can't believe my brother ordered so many dvds <laughs> like we ended up i think we ended up just like putting them in a dumpster at events eventually but um but anyway, yeah, they they were like super grateful, and um, that's how the Japanese do, man. They fucking they uh, they pay you back, you know, tenfold. Absolutely. Um, what well, I want to ask you when it comes to recording, uh, what was the first time you listened to a record where you where you noticed the recording? You know, mm. I th- I feel like that. I think everyone kind of has specific things that they might think of. Uh, I'd be curious to know George's answer on this too. Like the yeah. first time where you notice, like, oh my god, this record sounds extremely good, or bad, or bad. That's also uh, that's a great point too. I, I mean, feel like once if you discover power violence, that's when you really understand when something <laughs> sounds bad. Uh, you know, like pretty early on when I started driving, I was way into like 
car stereos and like a very hi-fi car experience, you know? And so when you put a subwoofer in your car, you start immediately immediately noticing like some stuff sounds really good in here and stuff. Some stuff sounds really bad. Um, and like, so yeah, but I had this like the shittiest little truck and I think the stereo was probably worth more than the truck. You know what I mean? By the time we were done, it was like, like, like crossovers and fucking subwoofers and all this shit. And like, and it was so small. You're basically sitting on the subwoofers, like behind right. you and the thing. Um, but like, and so that's when things started to really become clear about like, about like, Oh, this sounds killer. This d- doesn't really, I can't play this in my car. Um, and like, again, we're in the era of like mid nineties, fat records kind of stuff where like shit didn't sound great. You know, like some of it did like punk and drublick sounds pretty good still. Absolutely. Um, um, but like a lot of that stuff was like kind of thin metal production almost, you know, for like this poppy music. Um, or I remember listening to operate the operation Abbey like discography for, for the first time, just, just kind of wishing like, man, I wish this just sounded better, you know? Totally. Um, but, but it's, but of course I wouldn't change it. It sounds amazing. Um, so I, uh, I don't know if I, if I really started like, other than just noticing these things are different or like, I like this one better, you know, like, uh, I don't, I don't know what, what particular record jumped out as being like the one. Um, but the first one I ever chased was, um, the shape of punk to come. Like okay. hands down to to where I was like, how the fuck is this even possible? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, and so that would have been, yeah, late nineties, early two thousands. But, um, before that, I don't know, man, like all that, like, I, I remember liking like records, like that I, that I think sound horrible now, but, uh, but, and, and as it, I, I deal with this all the time at work or in the studio, I'll ask people for reference material. Like, Hey, what do you, any, any ideas of what you want your, this record to sound like? nine and a half times out of 10, they just tell me a record that they like. They like the record. You know what I mean? Like right, they, they totally. like the songs, they like the band, but like the recording might sound like ass, but they never even realize that because they love the record so much, you know? And so, um, so I don't know, like my perception of all that stuff was so skewed because of, because I liked the music, you know, like, like I think about like strung out records or something like that, that I liked when I was in high school. And like, I was like, man, this shit is fire or whatever. Like, I think I hear those recordings now and I'm just like, what is this? You know, like, <laughs> uh, so I don't know if I have a good answer for that, but, but I do, I do remember hearing, um, yeah, Shape of Punk to Come, Full Collapse, which I think still sounds kind of weird. Um, very weird record. Yeah. And it, uh, and it breaks my heart. I say this with love. But I think that's like still almost like the best sounding record from them too. Yeah. Is, you know, yeah. I wish like War All the Time sounds really thin. I wish right. that was like a little bit bassier. Production's tricky, man. Especially when you, that, that 2000 era, early 2000s, like late 90s, like people were really kind of stabbing in the dark about like, how do we make this, how do we make yeah. these genres sound or whatever? And like, it was, yeah, the beginning, the, the, the beginning of digital recording being more accessible. So people were like fucking around with samples and like, <laughs> and like crazy fucking EQ whatever's. And um, yeah, it was an embarrassing time. I'm glad I didn't get caught up in like in bands wanting those things to, you know, I mean, like I, I was kind of stuck with like, let's just make it sound like how it sounds in the room, you know? Totally. Um, and that was the start. What about you, George? Yeah. I've been, th- I've been thinking about it while Jack's been answering uh, and, and kind of, uh, have a lot of the same points whereas like whereas like i i yeah there, there's times where i remember production uh for n- not necessarily for its like outstanding quality but just like that it defined something for me usually it's like i'm, I'm a little like 
adverse to it at first. Like I'm trying to think of like like Jane Doe. Like the first time I really heard that, I was like, I was like, ah, because and this and again, I'm like 15 here or something, and I'm coming from metal, which is more like produced and stuff like that. And and it didn't have the same like kind of what I consider like underproduction that like early thrash records had and stuff that have their own kind of charm like Slayer. It was its own thing. And I felt like it was very, it was very uh, brash and very like at first kind of like hard to uh, kind of wrap my head around, but like really early on, um, you know, the, the prodigy was a huge one for me. Oh, that's a great call. And again, it was because my mom had bought fat, fat of the land. Um, Cause I had gotten a lot of my musical taste from my mom who was very into music and it had to do with the style as well. You know, it wasn't just say the production, but, but I hadn't heard music made like that. I didn't, you know, to me it was very extreme and, um, and very cool and sculptural and, you know, like, uh, very like in, in a world. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and then there's been things like that, you know, since then the first time I really heard like, second wave black metal you know and like that is its own world it's not a good recording necessarily but it it's deliberately not a good recording right? yeah and it brings you to a place that is completely outside of you know your usual experience which is for me i I think um something i always kind of look for i i want to say to uh because you got into recording jack at a time where digital and analog were making like a big split Mm -hmm. um it's so nice to hear how how you ended up because I so for example I bought Gateways to Annihilation the Morbid Angel record right I had no idea I was like you know 12 or 13 at the time I had no idea what like a V drum was right and if you hear that record it's you know it's crazy sounding it's full digital it's full like I think the whole thing is sampled crazy Um, like I don't even know I, I assume Pete Sandoval was playing but like I think he's like an electric kid or something. Yeah. Oh, weird. That, that was common then, I think. There's that, oh, well, there's that Zayo record too, the self-titled record where all the drums are extremely just and, like... And they did, and, and that, was, that was like a move because the record before that was like really organic. Really sounding. raw, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah and yeah. I, I, just, I just remember being like, like, I hate, like I loved the songs, but yeah. it, it took a while to like get into, I was just confused. I was like, I didn't know why it sounded like that. Yeah. It's just funny. Yeah. Well, and, and I think about that too. Like my earliest, my earliest memory of like, like in high school, I come like early high school, I come home from school. I had like an amplifier that I, that I bought and I would just spend a lot of time like trying to figure out like, you know, playing with the fucking EQ on it and like, like, well, this sounds really woofy and whatever, but like, it's not very distinct or like, this sounds really like nice and like bright, but now it's thin and whatever. And like, just recognizing the like options, I guess. And, 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 and kind of like, trying to figure out how to work that into you know it wasn't you didn't even know what was good or bad it was just kind of trying to see like well, like how do i fit this into the world that i am in you know like uh yeah no, no, you're exactly i had a karaoke machine that had like four eq knobs and I yeah the same thing i would put cds that i owned and i would just sit there and tinker for ages which is funny right because now as a recording engineer i'm just like don't nobody touch your fucking eq on your on your stereo <laughs> yeah. you know, like like it's supposed to like leave it flat although i mean yeah that's not entirely true but like uh but yeah, it is funny how like how wild you can get with a graphic EQ on your home stereo. You know what I mean? Where everything just yeah. sounds fucking crazy now. When I got older and I got a little smarter about mm-hmm. how things sound and the way they sound, I want to say uh, At the Gate, Slaughter of the Soul, for me, was a very defining 
very defining sonically. Yeah. Um, and, um, and then, uh, like the mid 2000s, uh, Randall Dunn stuff when he was, when he did Wolves is two hunters, um, mm-hmm. and, and that whole era. And he was, he did, um, monoliths and dimensions that sun record and, and, and that kind of, um, opening my eyes to like real kind of weirdo organic recording methods. super organic and, right super analog it, super like, analog i yeah. mean jane jane doe is a hundred percent analog record which yes to, yes to me is like still very impressive when i hear it you know like I, totally because that was an early like that was one of those ones where it's like man I, like i can't even do this you know what i mean like, or like it, it was you felt like you were up against it like trying to make a, a recording in your house with nothing but a computer and a little interface that like could stack up to something like Jane Doe felt like a, com- a complete impossibility. You know what I mean? So yeah, like we yeah. almost, almost abandoned that idea. It's like, well, we'll just do what we're doing over, you know, like we'll, may- maybe one day we'll get there. Now I, it makes more sense. And like, uh, and I'm using a lot of similar tools and it, it, which, which helps, but yeah. Something that's interesting is I feel like between both of your answers and something that I was even just thinking about for my own is like, you almost have to notice a rough or bad recording to then appreciate what a good record quote unquote good recording is you know of what i'm course. saying like mentioning the morbid angel mentioning the operation ivy and then being like oh wait no this is actually you know what would be considered good like for instance i i mean i think the first one of the first times that i noticed recording was like the first corn record oh, when yeah. i got into corn in like 94 sure. where i was like sure. this thing sounds insane but mm-hmm. like you know, then you revisit it later. Obviously it was 94 and like yeah. a lot of experimentation going on there, but sure. then, yeah, then you, you know, you'll hear a, a very well-produced like Rick Rubin-y record or something like that. And you're like, okay, there is a difference here. Like, totally. Um, I wanted to ask uh, Jack, when it comes to recording, what was the first band that uh, maybe you didn't know? Cause I already asked you about, your, you know, I feel like you talking about re- recording your early band sure. um, in that very uh, intense interesting uh unique <laughs> diy way uh kind of handles the first experiences recording question but i wanted to ask you what was the first band that you did not know personally oh that wanted to record with you oh you know that's a really good question i, I mean i shit i mean well, in the beginning it was all people i knew personally right like like exactly yeah the, the first band i ever recorded that wasn't my own band was very shortly after i got my computer uh and i had some friends where i was like hey come over like let's record your band they were called a glass theme okay. um and it was kind of weird experimental hardcore it's still good uh it, I, I don't i don't think the recordings very good but like the uh music was good but i mean i mean i'd have to go like uh there was a band called confidant that was from i think kind of some folks from east bay some folks from peninsula or san francisco doing kind of like just punk music you know like experimental punk music but like uh i remember those guys coming through and like uh but it's like friends of friends you know but like that's my whole life uh, in in here it's it's uh but i did have some randoms come through and and this was like when i was at my parents house like that band owen hart from up in tacoma oh yeah Uh, i remember when they came and this wasn't this was a little further along but i was still at my parents house which was only maybe the first year and a half or so that i was doing this stuff but like having strangers just like roll up your driveway and like come in to like you know make a record at your fucking parents house it is a little weird um did you feel an extra pressure there because obviously it's like they heard something that they like from you but you are in fact a stranger like do you did you feel more pressure to sort of like quote unquote deliver in those circumstances you always feel more pressure when it's somebody else's band you know what i mean like like uh and and you and at that point 
because I'm trying to think. There was this band Burial Year from from out here that oh, yeah. was really fucking good. And like I did, we did their record uh, before that. Because and again, this is where the snowball effect happens. Of like the reason that Owen Hart came is because they heard the Burial Year record and they were like, oh, it's good. Like let's like while we're down here on tour, we're gonna come record some songs. And and then you start feeling okay. Well, they they already heard something that I've done and they liked it, and I know how to repeat it, or you know what I mean, like replicate or, or whatever. So. Um, but yeah, you always feel a responsibility with somebody else's stuff, and it, it, which is it's good actually because it does push you to like sharpen your skill set and like um, and make sure that you don't let somebody down or whatever, you know. But um, yeah, so every band that I've worked on has either been somebody's friend or something. You know what I mean? Like it's pretty like it, you don't get into strangers until like until like somebody's record gets kind of popular or something like that, you know, or like or the word of mouth starts to get a little bit further away. Um, I was curious what the first record that you cite as like the sort of beacon that called a lot of other people to you. Cause it feels like in the, you know, around the 2010 era is when like you start doing Death Heaven, Joyce Manor, mm -hmm. Loma, bands like that. Like, do you, do you notice you, you like the cold calls coming in a lot more once those records hit? Yeah. I mean, like, uh, Def Heaven and Jeff Rosenstock were like the two bands that like brought the most other bands. Which is um, interesting. I got to point out because Jeff Rosenstock told me that Def Heaven was what was, brought him was, to you. Was the reason that he, yeah, he, he had only worked with, um, he'd only pretty much worked on his own stuff up until then. Um, That's I'm so looking sad. back. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, when he told me that my, my eyes just got really wide. I was like, Whoa. Well, so he, uh, he, it was three records he, he cited. Sunday there was one, uh, the, the hard girls, a thousand services, which is a fucking amazing record. If anybody's listening to this, it's on Spotify, go listen to it. Um, and, uh, classics of love, which was actually mm -hmm. the band, the same people that were in hard girls, but Jesse Michaels from operation Ivy was the singer. Yep. And that record is fucking amazing and that was one of those moments where i was just like get the fuck out of here like jesse michaels is in my my vocal booth and he's asking me what i think about the tape <laughs> you know like i have a i have an operation ivy tattoo on my arm you know like yeah. uh that was some of my like my fucking like total staple like uh you know early music shit so um yeah though th and that was all around yeah like uh, let me see what's in here um remember touche oh, played with classics of love at the 418 project in really Cruz. Wow. Yeah. whoa cool. that's tight yeah where we also played once with death heaven yes sir we, we Sick. Once there one time. yeah go ahead cool. <laughs> so like the early commodity stuff because we traveled around we were we were one of the first bands from our of our that that current scene to like get out and so um and people some people liked those recordings i remember talking to some of the loma dudes back you know when we first were meeting when we were all the bands were first starting and they was like oh you got some pretty good tones on that first record and i was like it sounds like shit you know what i mean but like uh but yeah so so commodity like uh was another thing where it's like you'd go travel someplace or you meet new people and they you, you're not even like pushing the idea of like yeah i record like come and record with me or whatever they're just like oh yeah you record like oh, i like your recordings like you know and then as the internet got better uh you start being able to work on remote things from anywhere around the world you know like you go to you know you make friends in germany and then all of a sudden you get you can get sent multi-tracks from germany they recorded there or they're coming here to record because they're on tour or something so um commodity was a big push with like kind of expanding the like clientele, you know, but totally. then, but then as, as, uh, you get a couple of records, all it takes, you know, that get a lot of attention and people start looking at the, the liner notes and, and, um, 
and putting two and two together. And I, most of the emails like that I get now, cold emails or whatever, uh, is the same exact thing. Hey, I've noticed your name pop up on like a half totally. dozen records that I like. Um, yeah. So I don't know if there was one, but, but those, but, but Jeff yeah. and Def Heaven were definitely, are definitely the lasting ones where it's like, there's a whole two different, completely different schools of like, in, in like genres. <laughs> amazing. They, yeah. It's they like, come together. Yeah. It's, it's cool. It's, it's really cool. Um, and, uh, so I want, so something I noticed with doing research, uh, is so your studio credits for a top for seemingly like atomic garden everything like that mm-hmm. start around 2009 mm. but before that was the studio at your parents house called the shit box it was yeah 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 <laughs> okay. uh, from, so to from... find that discography you'd have to look up the shit box on discogs Dude, i don't even know i i bet you at that time like there were there was probably hardly any any, any credits put on anything at that point you know what i mean oh well let me tell you my friend if you go on discogs there's oh, a it's, list of it's there oh i've yeah. never even looked <laughs> yeah it's uh, co- it's considered i think a record label on there but like you see it's like uh, it has um what was on there like it there was a like uh fuck what was it it was oh, like the life at these speeds split with end oh on yeah end. with end on end yeah sure um just a lot you know like yeah like seemingly all of your friends from yeah and like stuff that was on labels like dude and and all of that sort of stuff dude. So. oh my god yeah that's some that's real blast from the past shit but yeah so it was a shit box for maybe two years uh in the beginning so and i then, wanted to ask about bu- yeah. like your first experiences building a studio so like did you go from shit box to then building what became atomic garden yeah that I'm was curious. um february like, of 2006 so i wanted for listeners who might be interested in this world like when it comes to maybe building your first recording studio, I'd be curious what you think the first most important thing for having a studio would be. Like what like what do you consider like a mandatory you need this if you're gonna start uh, building a studio? Uh I mean the acoustics of the space that you're in are really, really important, right? Like, and most people discount it because it's not fun or sexy or cool, you know, to like buy stuff to like make things sound, like the room sound good. You want to buy gear, you know, you want to buy fucking compressors and tape machines and shit. Um, But the acoustic space that you're in is really important. It can kind of make or break the entire situation, right? So, um, so that's what I would say is that the rooms, you know, the room is proper. Like it doesn't even need to be built right or well or any of that stuff. Cause at the, at the early atomic garden, uh, we kind of like lucked into it sounding good. Cause we didn't know what we were doing. It was a bunch of friends building a studio. Right. Um, and on very little money and like, uh, very little know-how. And it just so happens that like, you know, we, the room, the room, actually that live room and that's, Space, I came to like so much that when we made the new studio, the professional, like crazy designed, like whatever, uh, I was like, hey, I kind of want the live room to sound like this old live room that we had because, like, it had this kind of special thing. And they did a good job, actually. It's pretty close. Um, and so, yeah. Um, like I ended up having like Stockholm syndrome for the way that <laughs> I mean, it, to be. it sounded pretty good, man. Like, like I mean, <laughs> we, we just redid Sunbather or we just remixed and remastered Sunbather and like it, it was done in that room. And I listened totally. to the drums and it's kind of like, shit. All right. Am I, um, am, I under- <laughs> am I correct that around the time you did the gouge away record was when you were in the middle of the move? I was probably getting ready to leave. Yeah, but the, I, the, I feel like maybe there was something there where like you weren't sure yet if the new space was going to be ready. I, that yeah. sounds kind of vaguely familiar. To yeah, me. yeah, they might have been on the tail end of of us because like because uh, that was I think that was like spring 
of 2018 or something like that. And That's we, correct, yeah. and we moved in summer, you know? And so, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, I don't know. Um, but yes, getting your acoustic right. Acoustics right is important, um, but you don't necessarily need to know what you're doing to get your acoustics right because that's what happened with us. Um, it, as I've learned in this new space, like a big part, like uh, we didn't soundproof the old studio. Like we built walls, but we didn't do any of the shit that is required to actually soundproof the walls, you know? Um, and so not to get into the fucking weeds on this, but like when you soundproof a room, you're basically like trapping all the pressure inside of that room, right? Because you're like making these really dense sealed walls that are like, like nothing can escape you know and what that translates to is a really terrible sounding room because like nothing can escape you know uh, it's all just bouncing all around and the art comes into like now you got to make that room sound beautiful uh and so in east palo alto when we built that space we didn't really sound perfect because we didn't really know how and so as a result all the fucking pressure could just escape the room and and what you're left with inside actually sounds pretty fucking good and it was like it was it was um it had a really healthy kind of slap to it and like it sounded reverb. It sounded like a, a big space, even though it wasn't really very big. Um, so anyway, that's, that's the thing you need when you're, if you're, if you're going to build a recording studio, you know, otherwise you might as well just do it in your practice space or in your house or whatever. Hey there. Do you need to get some merch printed? My incredible sponsors over at Anchorfish Printing has a great deal going on right now. You can get 100 soft style shirts for only 499 bucks. Do the math. That's a great deal. For details, email michael at anchorfishprinting.com. You can also visit anchorfishprinting.com and see what else they have to offer. They are a one-stop shop for all your merch needs. And don't forget to mention the first ever podcast when you place your order. All right, so from what I understand uh jack has been recording deaf heaven since the very beginning right like did did the demo yes. i was actually curious because i don't know if i know this how did you two meet and what was your first interactions like like did you know each other pre deaf heaven yeah yes yeah we did yeah uh, a little a little fabled band called rise of caligula um which was carrie and i's like death grind project i guess you could call it um yeah, how did you end up coming to me by the way yeah um so th there's there's much to say i guess i'll i'll try and pare it down a little bit but essentially in modesto um where where we were living where we're from and at the time in modesto and carrie and i not having uh computers or just much of anything um there was like murmurs of all this good stuff happening in the bay area that we were trying to get to and we were kind of in a little bit of a pit of like a valley metal scene um and and you know we we knew we really needed to like get out and um and and do more outside of town carrie was friends with these guys in series which is like a town next to modesto called plank walk um who were like a thrashy hardcore thing um who ended up doing were or world at the time right um and so carrie knew the plank walk guys right 
they were all friends with like North Bay guys and were starting to do shows with like Ceremony and stuff like that. This is summer of 2009, by the way. I'm looking on my hard drive. Yes, yes. And, <laughs> and, and this is so funny. And we had been, but, but, but the band had, we had been kind of going since like, Oh six, I guess. Oh six, oh seven. You know, in right in, because our my old band played with your old band. Yes, which, exactly. Which band is that? Thriller. Yes, yes. And and Lancaster yeah, or Victorville, one yeah, of the two. Yeah, 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 yeah. Amazing. So, so we only played the Victorvilles of the world. You know what I mean? And mm. we were desperate to get to the Bay Area, and <laughs> um, and this is all kind of part of it. So Carrie knew those guys, um, and. They knew Jack and we were hell of into like Loma and Quadre and Punch and that kind of thing that was happening. And so um, and so that was that was the impetus for it. Um, we did not know each other before then. I think mm -hmm. that was our, our first thing. We, we were yeah. a, kind of a cold call um, and we did this record and one of the songs on the record, Carrie, because Carrie played bass in that band. Um, and one of the songs on the record, Carrie wrote the guitar for, uh, it's the last song on the album and it is essentially the first deaf heaven song. Mm. So, um, it's, it mirrors, it's, it has all the things that deaf heaven has. And it was like, kind of like the outlier, uh, on the record. And, um, and after that dissolved, uh, and, and deaf heaven started up, we just, it, it was really natural. Yeah. I remember the the when we did the demo, you guys were like, we had done this other thing, and the demo was what like a year later or something like that, or yeah, or whatever it was, um, and it was like it was almost like like this quiet like like oh yeah, we're not really like we're not really ready to share this <laughs> to any of our friends yet, you know, like like there was this like this sense of like of like uh, they're gonna think we're fucking pansies for making this like emo music. It was a secret, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, the, the, here's the thing: is that where we came from? It's a small town, and and you know, and people, we we kind of us included, we were like, this is like a town of haters, you know, and like right, and like everyone kind of tries to tear each other down, and and. <laughs> uh, and maybe that's true, maybe that's not, but that was certainly the perspective at the time. True. So our our big idea was if we secretly record this and we <laughs> and people don't know who we are, they will like it and we will trick ah. them. And then when they find out it's us, they can't say anything. And like, I swear, and I swear to you, that's how it like, kind of worked that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I feel like we maybe talked about this a little bit because Jack, it's so funny. The first time that Touche played with Deaf Heaven, it was the Joyce Manor record release show. Oh, wow. For their self titled record. The three mm -hmm. of us were on it, which is just an insane flyer to look at. It, yeah. it pops up on the internet every now and again, and everybody just goes, Jesus Christ. That's awesome. But, uh, <laughs> but we remember because Trey from, from mm -hmm. Death Wish was the one who messaged me and was like, Who is this band? And I was like, I don't know who this is. And he was like, Listen, he like sends me the band cap. It was for the demo. And there was like no photos of the band. It was like very, very mysterious. Anonymous black metal. Uh, we, exactly. we, were, we were so scared. <laughs> <laughs> and so we remember saying, like, we're like, that. when that van shows up, it's either going to be like Heshers who are like in their 40s or it's going to be like 
stony handsome kids from the bay and then the door flies open and like carrie george uh nick bassett they all come out we're like okay they're like handsome stony kids yeah. that's, that's what it is oh man yeah um, i remember yeah trey even on the phone being like hey oh, th- thank god man i uh re- really glad you guys uh look look the way you do you know? <laughs> you're much much more marketable <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, um, yeah yeah so I'm, I'm, I want to, you know, obviously before we get to de- to, to Sunbather, because you obviously did the demo, you did the the Road to Judah, and mm-hmm. you also did. Uh, I'm assuming you did the split with uh, yeah. Boston. Boston yeah. And, yeah, and that that one also is getting a re a reworking. Or yeah, oh, cool. Already. Um, what uh, what I'm kind of curious, Jack. What was like your takeaway from working with actual Deaf Heaven the first time? Like, did you did you notice anything specifically special about what you were witnessing? Yeah, I mean, the first the demo was um, it was it was something like they I I it was also I mean it's it was peppered with their like weird like secrecy about it you know but like right. and so that, that was intriguing from the get go. But then it was yeah it was different than the Rise stuff. Um, it felt like it felt kind of familiar to me because it felt kind of rooted in some screamo stuff, but it also like, I don't really, I'm not, uh, I'm not a metal guy, so I don't really know metal that well, like the, the, the lineage and all that stuff, but like, sure. but it was, it's, it felt fresh and, and, and kind of like a cool take on some, and some multiple things at once. Um, and the vibe, the, the vibe was good, you know, like, like Carrie and George have a thing, you know, that's like hard to, uh, to like, to, it's hard to miss, you know, like they're good friends. They like to, um, bust each other's balls pretty like uh you know pretty mercilessly and uh but like but the so the vibe of the band was good the music was cool like it was just it was a it was a good thing and and um in the demo process the recording of the demo was was um much closer to how sunbather was done it was just the two of them and a drummer and like carrie played everything um and other than the drums and the vocals and like and we built this thing up and um i feel like the in-between deaf heaven between like rosa judah and on the split it was a lot of different people it didn't really feel like it was like right or something like like, like the, it all hadn't fallen into place like in some ways the demo felt more like a complete thing than the stuff that followed and then but then when sunbather came around we were kind of back to square one and it was like oh shit okay uh also i think i don't know we haven't talked about this in in maybe you know 10 years but like i think when roads to judah finished up like it got a lot of attention which i don't know if any of us really realized it was going to get and i think there was a collective like oh man we probably could have done a better job on that um like you know there were some corners that were cut in like performances i mean yeah we did the whole record in three days yeah probably i mean that sounds right no i mean like <laughs> yeah i mean like like from like 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 including like fucking setup day you know oh, what i mean man, like, that's wild it's amazing yeah and some yeah. too some they're done in five i want to say Something and then like yeah i mean like but, but the difference but yeah. being though right that like it's demanding music for for drummers in particular right and up until up until sunbather there wasn't really a, a set drummer and like i think all of them had their own struggles with the style and like keeping up um yeah. and and there is there is something to behold when you see dan tracy play drums especially with this style of music he's got a fucking swagger uh that is like undeniable and and uh some dudes when they play this style of music they look like they're about to fall off their fucking chair half the time you know they look worried you know like they don't look like confident or stoked uh, like and so um 
that I, to me that was that that makes a huge fucking difference you know and like um in like uh obviously carrie and george are good at planning all this stuff out writing the songs and so and, and and having carrie having the two of them be the ones that are like building out the the recording from from zero i think there's just a cohesive quality to that that like wasn't super happening on those in between uh recordings yeah i actually had a, a note here about specifically recording because you do all your i mean you're you're known for doing live recordings mm-hmm. right yeah. like you very like have you done much track by track or is it uh, almost all over, over yeah over the years like very very little and it's usually uh because there's a good reason like you know whatever like this where there's you know there's one person that's playing the string instruments you can't record everybody live you know totally so yeah my question was like obviously you're you know not to assume but you're probably more low more more or less used to recording punk bands that have like 90 second songs sure. three minute songs whatever sure. you're now recording this these bands that have like 12 minute songs, eight yeah. minute songs yeah. that have long stretches of blast beats happening for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So like, were you dealing with at minute eight, the thing falls apart and you have to start all over? Well, you don't always have to start over with live recording. Like you can always like, you can do multiple takes. Those multiple takes can be edited together, you know, to make one good take. You can do like, you can punch in at the end of a song or like just you know, okay, redo yeah. the end. You know, like it's not, you know, there, there's a lot of misconceptions about recording live and people get, bands get really freaked out about like we have to get all the way through the song and like not make any mistakes like oh my god like we'll never be able to do that and it's like uh first and first thing i say to most people is like you probably can first of all because they're your songs you know like uh <laughs> and, and and even if you can't it'll be fine you know like we'll, we'll deal and and typically um in a live recording especially to tape um the drums are the top priority drums have to be solid and the drummer ideally has to get through a whole song and be pretty happy with what happened and like if you need to cut some shit together you can if you know whatever but that's when somebody like dan tracy again shines because all those recordings except for the newest record there's no click track it's one take and it just is what it is you know like uh famously actually the song luna on i I always think about this (laughs) on on new bermuda is the fucking sound check for the recording like we did we got everything set up it was we were at a different studio so it took a long time to get set up and i think everybody was getting a little antsy and like it was like all right let's just get a taste take of a song let's just see how it sounds you know like it was it was the first thing to be recorded and they record and, and they recorded the take that's on the record it was the one try first try dan got all the way through it and, and luckily normally when that's happening uh in analog recording you got to do all your eqing and like compression happens on capture so you're often adjusting things like while you're getting while you're getting tones and stuff and for whatever reason i didn't change anything during the take i just sat there and let it happen because it was it sounded pretty good and like um and we got through it and it was like i was like god that sounded fucking cool and dan (laughs) dan was just like yeah i think that was it and i was like and i I go do you want to do it again or anything and he goes no and 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 i just said all right well and and the vibe for that whole record was like all right well we just achieved something let's all go get lunch you know like let's walk (laughs) out of here for a while and so um but that's that's it like it's it's a band playing together that just is really good and like that's and so that's that's what you get you know right Dan, Dan, Dan is in, in our group. He's the most assured one. And so Carrie and I, if we're ever like, if we just need a quick opinion on something, you know, like A or B, you know, he's for whatever reason, his thinking is just very confident and immediate. Yeah. And, um, and so that is just, it's just the most Dan Tracy fucking thing in the world to just walk in the control room and be like, nah, it's good. Like we heard it back and he's like, great, let's do it. Yep. 
let's go. Yeah, and, 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 and like, it was kind of like I was like, you sure you don't want to like just try another one? And he was just like, nah. Nah. Like it's fine. Like it's fine. Now I don't like. I'm not, I'm not going to do it any different or better or whatever. You know. Like so. So anyway. But when you're like, I've come to expect that out of bands is like you don't need to be a, a like a Jedi rock star. You just need to be comfortable with what you just did. You know what I mean? Like some bands record a live take and it's kind of a mess, and they come in the control room like that's what our band sounds like. This is great. You know. And I'm like, fuck yeah. You know. Like let's go. Let's keep going. Um. So it's yeah you don't need to be like a virtuoso or anything like but but you do have to just kind of like manage your expectations and 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 with i and i i spend a lot of time by the way explaining this to other bands because they'll cite like oh we really like what you did with the death heaven stuff i just had this conversation like a week ago a band hit me up they want to come record they really like stuff like death heaven or king woman or whatever this that and i'm like okay well check it out this is how those records were made and i kind of explain the process and they're like what dude you're blowing my mind right now like that that like that exact verbatim line gets said to me on the phone all the time and i'm like i go yeah it's just that easy just come into the studio and play your songs and like if you're and if you'd practice enough it's going to sound fucking great uh and and yeah they're like what no click track no samples no editing no this or that and i'm like no they just play you know like you're a band you know like <laughs> like when you go to band practice you don't just sit you're going to sit there and watch the drummer play his part you're like all right cool yeah now the bass you go play your part you know like and you stand there watching each other play like you all play together you're like so um yeah of course it's like the natural it's just the natural like fucking environment for a band um and this band does it does it well so you don't often have a click track going i'm just no. curious for my I, I discourage it first of all uh but if and if a band is adamant about it i'll be like okay great and if they've practiced with it i'll say okay great but uh definitely is just not one of those bands it was, it's never even been a discussion like yeah I, we'll just record i guess i'm just surprised by that for the like punching and live aspect you know what i'm saying where like if if someone kind of fucks up in the middle of a take then to come back in and have it not sound wonky that seems like that seems like a lot of trouble it's, for you Jack. It's, it's it's not too bad you know like for for a punching like that like or if if somebody's punching like their guitar later like they're playing along to the drums that we already sure. have you know if we need a whole take punched um oftentimes with especially with music like this i think there's the muscle memory just takes over you play it really similarly over and over again you know uh even the tempo and and a group is pretty self-governing you know like somebody somebody knows if it's too fast like you can tell on a guitar like the song's too fast i can't play my part anymore you know um mm -hmm. so uh or or if it's the case where we are going to punch in a live thing everybody hears the part like leading up to where we're going to record again you know what i mean like oh like, yeah you like you'll do the playback and everyone kind of yeah. plays along with it and totally so, okay, so it's, you're not just yeah. like guessing you know so like yeah, <laughs> yeah there's not a lot of um it's not nearly as mysterious and like and scary as people think you know it's it's actually very organic and it, it like in these days we've taken i've taken it a step further kind of like on the with the deaf heaven records and like loma records there's often everything's in isolation so it's live but there's like you know guitar cabinets are in a, in a booth the bass cabinets in a booth drums are in the room by themselves um most records these days i've had it's basically a no headphone recording everybody's just in the room together drums bass uh guitars amps like there is some separate you know we use some like panels to separate but like that's how we did the 10 years gone record yeah uh, yeah everybody's just in a room together the vocals are a little separate so that they don't get a bunch of um, bleed in them but like yeah yeah it's really not um i i really like the way that all that it all comes together anyway we're getting into the weeds Someday. No, I like it. I like it. No, I appreciate <laughs> it. Uh, yeah, George, I wanted to ask you, because um, from what I read, it was like you and Carrie wrote Sunbather in your apartment like a year before you guys went and recorded it. Is that is that correct? Yeah, it was probably being pieced together that that year. Yeah. I mean, it because it's, it's Carrie and because he's working 
in a vacuum, you know. Um, I'm sure there are, there's ideas that he'd been toying with for a long time, but yeah, we started putting it together with trying to. I'm really trying to think. Uh, we we went. Uh, we're what, we're in the studio in January. Or yeah, I think so. it was like it's like you guys recorded it in January 23rd, 2013. Yeah. It came out in June. Yeah, so I want to say that Carrie and Dan really started getting together in probably like September. Okay. Um, September, October, or something, because Carrie had songs, and and Dan was like, we we became acquainted with him, and um, and I remember, you know, we had one practice, and I was like, yeah, you're in. Yeah, <laughs> like this is fun. Carrie, <laughs> Carrie also had. <laughs> Carrie also had all those interludes on his like loop station thing. Yes, yes. So like a lot of the stuff that you hear those in, the in between instrumental songs, um, like we remade them and like and like layered them and did them did everything one piece at a time to like to kind of like expand them. But like Car those songs existed inside Carrie's loop pedal. Uh, he came in and he just he knew you know he knew all the individual parts and it was just it would uh, it was a thing that would like play back in mono into a guitar amp like because that's just how those pedals are so mm -hmm. it was very one dimensional but it sounded cool and then uh, we just kind of like song exploded it you know to like make it uh, into these these kind of bigger things but but yeah all that stuff existed before the studio yeah, that's, that's right. interesting because right. yeah I I think what I had read which uh, I was curious of was when it came when it came to stuff like the interludes. It was like parts that were maybe at one point trying to be shoehorned in to the songs that already existed, maybe. And you guys realized like, oh, this should maybe be its own separate thing. Is that fair or is that maybe taken out of context a little bit? I, I well, it, the, in, in our sequences, I think that we've often tried to do different ideas for each record. Um, I, I do think for Sunbather, there was a conscious... Um, idea to have interludes but much like on new bermuda after the first song uh or in the first song um brought to the water there's like a coda at the end of it that kind of serves as an interlude though it is technically not and i'm sure in sunbather there was conversations of the same ilk like do we fold this in or should we or make just, it its own track or make it its own track yeah i think in particular um say like please remember the the center uh, interlude that is quite a full track on its own but i think with like windows um mm -hmm. which is the song before pecan tree um i there was probably talk about having that be like an extended introduction instead of um its own thing um but but i, I like the way that they they serve oh yeah, yeah i'm curious totally... if because sunbather is a pretty singular record in the sense that like it's the record that, you know, obviously gained you guys a lot of attention and everything like that. And it's probably more reported on or talked about thoroughly as opposed to Rose to Judah. Um, you know, from what you read, Sunbather feels like very theme heavy. And you guys obviously have a lot thought out and, you know, especially with the interludes and like certain things that happen on the record, you know, people reciting different things and, and whatever else and and um i was curious if rose judah was also as theme heavy but it's maybe just not as talked about as much or did you guys go into sunbather with just like way more to say no i think it is just as theme heavy though because all of our records have we've attempted to do as a kind of vague uh feel about them you know um yeah I, uh I just think that Sunbather, we just had our shit together more um, in, in terms of knowing who we were and what we wanted to accomplish before Rose to Judah. We weren't really a band. I mean, like 
we thought we were, you know, but we hadn't truly been through the subsequent like three years of trial, you know, and, and various band members and all the things that kind of Jack was saying earlier, like there, there was a lot of um, kind of tumult there. And by the time we got to sunbather uh, because it was just Carrie and I, you know, we were like, what do we like, you know, Mm -hmm. and how, how can we refocus this? And it felt like there was like a collective um, kind of like thought that like, Roads of Judah got a lot of attention. It was a little bit like rushed or whatever, uh, at least in the recording end of it. And like, it was like, okay, well, now that we know that people are paying attention, we're going to do a really good job this time. Yeah, yeah. I think we're scared. I think we're like, we're like, let's not fuck this up. (laughs) Like, Roads of Judah was like, eh, like, you know, we can, it doesn't matter what we do. It's the first shot. You know what I mean? Uh, And now it's like, oh, now there's like expectation or an idea of expectation, which Which is actually, that's actually kind of interesting to hear because you would think most people would focus so much on the first LP. I mean, I'm not to say you weren't at the first, you know, not to say you weren't, but like, it sounds like you guys realized the sophomore record was where you guys had to like come correct. We had just always heard. That's like the scary thing you hear is like, oh, you think you, you got it now. And, and really what had happened was in that time between the records, we had started to shed a little bit of our DIY aspect and we had gotten a booking agent and Mm -hmm. um, we had, you know, like we had this label that we could see could get like ads and magazines and things like that. And it started to feel like a bit, you know, like professional or or, or whatever. And, um, and we didn't want to lose it. And we were like, oh, if we, now, like Rose Judo, whatever, whatever happened with it, it was apparently good enough that we've acquired these things. And, and our thought was like, if we put out a shitty record, like our agent's going to leave us and, you yeah, know, and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, and we're going to be, you know, we're going to, we're going to go back to Modesto in a year. And like, you know, Carrie and I are always like worst case scenario people. Um, so, and I think that that pressure uh has been applied to all of our albums um but that one in particular yeah definitely uh jack i wanted to ask you you know like in the reporting of this record it sort of talks about how you had more of a hands-on approach when it came to sunbather as opposed to maybe you just kind of playing the role of an engineer um i was curious what that meant like were you just a lot more i guess sort of critical of like certain choices or yeah how would how would you explain maybe the difference between recording those earlier stuff recording then to recording sunbather uh if i was more heavy-handed it would it would maybe only by comparison you know it, it just just because like uh with roads to judah it was a band in the studio recording songs that they had already that they'd written it was a full band you kind of just get what you get is in terms of live takes especially when you only have a couple days to record it you know um like the songs just come that you hear them for the first time and it's like well that's the song okay um but with sunbather again we were trying to like uh like maybe make up for not not like for kind of rushing through the previous thing also there was a lot more wiggle room because it was just carrie recording everything so you had time to kind of like to kind of like sort it all out you know and i did figure out like um kind of a protocol for the guitar layering that that Mm -hmm. i think like made a good thing uh in the end but like i i wasn't i would i don't think i was um 
I, I wouldn't call myself like producer capital P where I was like, oh, that part's wrong. You know, you need to play this part instead. Or like, you need to change shortness or what, you know, like that. I, we weren't fucking with like song structure or performances even. It was just maybe just more about like, how do we fit this all together? And like, how do we make this like present itself in, in a way that's like most effective? Just, you know, like it's really more engineering type stuff. But like, yeah, I will say, by the way, another thing I often point out about the Deaf Heaven, like, aesthetic at least at this early shit going back to acdc is that not only are we not using samples we're not using click tracks we're not using like heavy editing or quantizing or any of that shit they're just playing through like regular fucking equipment you know what i mean like it's a les paul basically into a marshall it's it's back in black you know what i mean just way faster and like you know with <laughs> a, little, a little bit less melodic vocals right uh and so um that's another thing it's like it's not down tuned it's not fucking metal zone pedal or like some angle amp or some shit like that it's like classic equipment that's like proven and just normal you know like i don't know I, and i feel like people don't they i think they just assume that everything is a certain way maybe just because of the style of music Absolutely. No, Carrie gets it all the time. And even just telling people that most of our songs are in standard. And if they're not in yeah. standard, they're in drop D. And people are like, oh. Or everybody yeah. wanted to know. No, oh, no follow-up question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or they're like, like, what's the reverb on the guitar on Sunday? Like, yeah. there, isn't, there isn't any reverb on the guitar on Sunday. They're like, he's just pl you're plugging into an amp. If you layer four layers of the same thing, it starts to just sound cool. You know, like, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, no. And I, I, to... To, to that question as well i think that at this point um by 2013 us and jack had worked together a few times and and the comfort level was was um much higher than and C carrie and i have always been very cagey about um you know like letting people in in a way um like outsider outsider opinion yeah. yeah yeah i think so um but like with jack it's jack's always been someone that we've respected hugely uh not only with it like skill set but his taste and everything and it was just i think i think the more that we've worked together the more natural it is to just be like well what do you think you know sure. like well in this this looking at it now with the rise record this would have been our fifth time working together yeah so so yeah you really do like and, and i noticed that uh still on a regular basis even just the second time you work with a group of people like it's so much better than the first time in, in that, like everybody knows everybody's like vibe you have. Um, there's expectations are all just very clear. Like you have a thing to beat, which is whatever the last thing was. And like, that's usually your starting point for the new thing. Um, and uh, yeah, it always, it's always great when it's repeated. And like, and I, I have a, a, a handful of bands where I've done the majority of their discography and it is really fucking cool. And I feel like really grateful, especially, I mean, Def Heaven's a prime example of like you expect when a band gets big that they're gonna like level up with like their producer or go to some name or some you know do some big thing and like I am very thankful and grateful that I got taken along for the ride you know what I mean because it, it's 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 not how it always goes. Totally, totally. Um, I was curious about because I know that Trey came to the recording session for Sunbather, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. So Trey from Deathwish, part owner, comes to the studio. Was that had you you probably met Trey at that point, right? Uh George? Uh yes, I had. We had um because you guys probably had toured the East Coast and we yeah, but I, th I that's what I mean. I think we had only really gotten lunch uh and, and such when we were in Boston. Did that add any sort of nervousness having him be there? Because I mean, I know what it's like to have like kind of someone show up in the studio where you're like, okay, the label guy's here, like, you know, kind of a yeah. deal. 
It, I think it did probably, yeah. But you know what? I, I remember feeling like, like, I like kind of a big deal. Yeah, I remember back like, oh wow, like we are cared for so much that, and 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 to be fair, I think uh, Trey was also in town for Loma shows. There, there, there was there was yeah, yeah there was there's a, a few there's a few things going on, but yeah, yeah, also yeah. Trey's presence is pretty like. He's a chill dude, you know. It's he's like it's like, oh, dad, it's like oh, dad, dad, dad came to buy us lunch at the studio today, yeah, you know, or yeah, whatever. Like, yeah. <laughs> and his very sense much. of humor, and his sense of humor is to not even talk about what you guys are doing. Yeah, yeah, he's he he was he was great. Um, no, I just remember being kind of like uh, feeling like it was it was really like nice and kind of like important seeming, and then, um, and then I I felt a lot of confidence because this was the first time that someone outside was getting ears on it. And he was, um, from my memory, pretty stoked. And I, I was mean, like, he, Oh, the, I think we no, got Trey the notoriously will never, in my experience, will never tell me how he's feeling about touche, <laughs> but I'll hear from other people how he's feeling about touche the positive sides, obviously. Yeah, so yeah, like, yeah. so I remember Trey, that same day when he went and saw you guys calling me and being like, I cannot believe how fucking incredible this death heaven record is like Whoa. being like, I am moved. I was very moved hearing the playback wow. for it, which is something that I don't know if he probably ever reiterated to you guys during that. Probably situation. not. No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> which is just funny because you always have to hear it through somebody else. No, but, no, no, it's, it's a uh, God. It's so nice to hear though. Very sweet. Yeah. Yeah. 10 years later. <laughs> no, he's 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 always been very uh 1, he's always been very very cool about how he feels about that album and and us in general. Yeah. So, uh b- before, you know, just kind of wrapping up the the Sunbather talk, obviously you guys just did this remix remasters. Is it just remasters or remix as well? Well, it's remix remaster. It was going to be just remastered and then um the label wanted an Atmos mix. Mm. Uh, so like a surround the Dolby the current Dolby um, surround format they wanted that to happen and I was like well in order for that to happen I basically have to remix the record so like we might as well put that out you know uh, and like just go full full tilt on it and so that's how we ended up it, it wouldn't have happened otherwise so when reading about you know because I think a big part of this record is like the sound of it and how you know it's very beloved and everything like that and you read about how it went from tape to digital back to tape for the mastering if i'm under if i'm understanding that correctly yeah. so was it doing that again or what was there was there much of a diff- i mean you just described the atmos situation but like when it came to mastering was it much of a different mastering process so the atmos thing is totally separate from from what i was doing like i i oversaw the atmos mixing but like it the it was uh no the 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 mix the remix was like ground up uh, like from from zero up remix um and which is interesting mostly because when i opened it all back up to kind of look at what the original mix was it was next to nothing like like it was what you hear on that first on on the on the original release is basically what we captured on tape and then the faders just being like pushed up and like panned or you know what i mean like panning done like basic levels because i think i mean my approach back then was a lot more purist of like well this is what we got this is what we did you know like sounds like your band also when you pair that up with like traditional um screamo post-rock and black metal production is all pretty undercooked you know so there was definitely like this thought of like it shouldn't be too glossy you know what i mean like and, and and then when you put the faders up and it just sounds like 
fucking like you already something's you know like oh but we may kind of just have it so we did next to nothing um to in terms of mixing the last time and so this time i just mixed it like i would mix a record today which is a lot more involved and like it's not like it's a night and day difference but totally. like but the it's a lot more uh high fidelity there's a lot less um harshness in like the cymbals and the guitars where like you can turn it up loud it doesn't like hurt uh and there's a lot less like muddiness in the, in the low end and stuff the drums are way more articulate like they like punch a lot harder that was another thing too black metal production drums really quiet right so mm -hmm. they, there was there was a definitely an effort like don't make the drums too loud um which which these days would bum me out you know what i mean because i like loud drums and i like them to be really punchy and so um, so yeah, the, the current mix basically just sounds like what dev heaven sounds like today, you know, like it's, it's, right. it's a bigger sound. It's a, it's a more just like filled out hi-fi thing. Um, and so the mastering mastering is kind of a separate thing, but like the, 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 the heavy lifting is done in the mixing, you know? Um, so, so yeah, it was pretty different. Uh, just, just in that, like, it's actually mixed this time. <laughs> totally. I was curious, uh, to ask you, George, how it felt to hear, the remix version for the first time that was amazing and especially the interludes to me that is like it's it's just what jack was saying everything is so articulate and it's so hi-fi and it's like brought it's brought up it's like you know it's like anything else it's like seeing a film you know kind of restored or anything you're like yeah. it, it's all it's all all everything that made it beautiful and its original thing is maintained it's just yeah, there's a lot a of like lift. leveled up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Lift, yeah. There's a there's just less like cold coldness to it or something. You know, like like to put it in kind of normal terms. Yeah, and the, and the, yeah, and that's the other thing is that it it does have that that less um less of like that purposeful second wave black metal aesthetic where we went pretty tinny, you know, and yeah. and pretty thin. I think um mm -hmm. yeah, we brought brought the heft back. I think the the perfect descriptor in these situations for like the best case scenario for doing a record like this and like we just remixed and remastered the record that came out the same year as sunbather um same sort of thing that you guys are describing where it's just for me it's the word clarity mm -hmm. where it's just like yeah. oh clarity is all i wanted you know like sure. i can hear the drums better now i can hear loud and clear loud it's, and, our, it's, yeah. it's been our goal since day one for everybody but like we just you just sometimes you don't know how to get to the end as effectively you know sometimes yeah. it takes 10 years yeah yeah and i feel like now actually the thing that's cool about it is now the record mimics how we how we sound live now because we're playing on these bigger things and such and um and you know to that same point uh we did um 10 years gone like this sort of in-studio live record uh after all of our touring got canceled at the top of the pandemic and um if you hear i got the same feeling hearing that record because they're all these older songs reimagined but they have uh, an aggression and a heft to them um that weren't really present in the original recordings and I think it's just it's fun that we get these sort of updated versions along with our updated selves, you know, like not everything has to be lived in the past. What's kind of funny is it's like you'll hear, you know, from a corner of your fan base now and again being like, oh, man, I, I prefer the original or like, oh, like there's something about whatever. But it's so funny how it's always the people who are making it that are so excited about having this newer version. Like we re-recorded our first record of some years sure. ago. Just yeah, we're yeah. like we're like, yo we play these songs faster. I've 
I had bad grammar on some of these yeah. songs. I want to change, change some lyrics and fuck you. you have a problem That's with funny. it. That's like, funny. All of these little things that it's like, it's for, it, what it comes down to it, a lot of times in these situations, it's like, yo, it's for us. And yeah. And uh, you just got to, you know, you can choose to listen to what you want to, but. That's funny, is, man. This is I've, for us. <laughs> I've talked to Kurt about Jane Doe a bit, you know, like kind of just being like, God damn, man, like he's still whatever. And he's like, that's the one I want to remix the most of all. Oh. And like, they won't, and, and they won't let me, you know, like yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. And it's like, well, fuck. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, that's that's funny. That doesn't surprise me though. I mean, yeah. God, uh, but all of his, he said, you know, he's a goat for sure. I just saw oh, yeah. him. Uh, uh, everything he does is great. But yeah, you can, I think you can definitely tell the difference between his modern recordings and 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 that. Record oh my God! Yeah. yeah. Well, it would but be- but Jane Doe was though it was one hundred percent analog. He wasn't the primary engineer. It, you know, there was there was okay. like it was before he had like fully taken the reins, I guess. And yeah. and I don't know. Like today, I can say just for uh, like we talk a lot about production and style and like uh, you know things like um, just general approach. Like he would never do a fully analog, like manually mixed, where you have to have like five people on the console moving faders <laughs> and shit. Like he would never fucking do that on a on a converge record again. You know, like so so yeah, I can I can see. But at the same time, it's like it's such an important record to so many people. Like I don't know if I want to see it like redone, but it would be cool. I mean, maybe it'd be yeah. Cool. It's like yeah. I want to hear it. Yeah. I want to hear it, but I I understand that it's not necessary you sure. know sure. Yeah. um yeah. one of my favorite kurt bits i haven't had him on the show yet i gotta i gotta oh, do should, that yeah. but uh one of my favorite kurt bits i remember hearing about no heroes was the reason that record sounds just like extra fucking loud is that he got frustrated with everybody saying they wanted their part to be louder so he just let everybody be as loud as possible like he was just <laughs> like you want to be louder okay so that's why that record sounds no. like it's just peaking so much where he Dude. just like i let everybody get their way oh man <laughs> <laughs> um yo uh this has been awesome and george obviously we're going to be touring together uh yes. soon you guys playing the full record how exciting yeah. yeah yeah man uh what's the rehearsal like for that ben like have you are you guys doing the interludes we are yeah so we're doing the interludes live um that's uh that's that's been really fun it's um i'll, I'll you know selfishly i'll i'll, I'll t- tell this detail i get to i get to as part of this new show i leave for the interludes nice. and i and i don't you have you ever been Costume able to change have you ever no costume change but but, but, but a little a little a little tea on the side you know have, oh, you, yeah. ever, have you ever been able to walk off stage dude have, i don't stop yelling i am you never you never said that right. that's my biggest problem is that i've never known how to dial it back i i'll, I'll tell you i i i was laughing we we did it at roadburn and you know and like irresistible starts and i just you know i kind of walk off and i'm you know with the engineers and stuff enjoying my tea it just feels odd. It's really hilarious, but watching your band uh, play. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's just God, Carrie and Shiv uh, largely. Oh, right. So right. they'll be they kind of do everything, and then the rest of us kind of take our leave. So it's a bit. And it's like just a, icing his fists in a he's bucket. I, of- he's 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 yeah. on the side, iced up. You know what I'm he's saying? He's in his cryo chamber. He's, yeah, he's, <laughs> he's he's an ISO zone. Um, yeah, it's uh, oh, I'm it's, excited. It's cool. Yeah, it'll be a, a little bit of a little bit of cinema. Uh, man, and and since since we're here uh, again. Thank you sincerely for doing the shows with us. Uh, it is yeah. very meaningful to have all of these aspects, uh, the remix, remaster, your involvement, Jeremy, all these things um, to, to commemorate this has been really, really nice. Yeah. So thank I, you. I feel, oh, yeah. it feels like we, you know, if Nick wasn't also the busiest man on earth, this could have, we could also 
thrown Nick in here to get him the <laughs> I, art I, I, and all of that. Yeah. We're literally working on stuff today. I was just talking to him. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> it never stops. Is he gay? Um well Jack, uh to wrap up the show, I wanted to ask you, when was the first time you felt like you were doing the thing you'd been working so hard towards? Uh you know, I thought about that a lot. There was a couple little milestones along the way, you know, quitting my job, my regular job. That was a that was a big deal. But when we when when I moved into the the warehouse that became the you know the atomic garden and we and we built this thing from nothing uh that was it i mean it took a long time but it was it was um yeah i mean you know i'd stand there and just look at this framed out empty space and like it was pretty um powerful you know it was just like damn this is tight i like i I didn't know uh you know there was a lot of um effort to keep the overhead really low so like if this if this fails you know like i got my uh teaching my substitute teaching credential so like i could go be a sub if i needed to be a sub and like in the rent was kept deliberately very low like we you know i shared the space with some other people dan africa actually doing um screen printing but like the rent was really low so it's like hey we live here we work here like even if I have to go work a part-time job, I'll still be able to have the studio. And it was like this kind of like safe jumping off moment of like, let's go, you know? And like, and thankfully it only ever got bigger every year. And like, you know, um, and it's been amazing, but that was, that was when it really felt like, like, Oh shit, we're doing it. That makes a lot of sense too, because it's like one thing, if you're doing it out of like, you know, the house you were living in, yeah, but it does add that extra pressure where you're like, no, we're having to financially invest into building something. Yeah. So it has to work. Totally. Yeah. That, that makes sense. It. I appreciate you sharing that. And fucking, this has been awesome. I'm, I'm, this has been uh, this has been a lot of fun doing this for the first time with two different people too. So oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you guys no, both, thank you, man. Thank you so much for the invite. And that is our show. Thank you so much to Jack and George for coming on. That was a lot of fun. And thank you for listening. This episode was edited, produced, and made to sound so great by my boy, Ryan Rainbow. Shout out to him. And reminder of two things. One, there's a bonus episode available right now. If you head on over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon, where George and Jack both answered questions that were submitted by subscribers patreon.com slash the first ever patreon and secondly come see george and i rock touche amore deaf heaven u.s tour or parts of the u.s check out dates at touche slash tour hope to see you there take care of yourself if you're celebrating thanksgiving be safe out there have a good one take care bye bye